Welcome to another Film 5.0 podcast, hosted by Steve Hiller and me, Linda Gutchko. This week's guest is Jamie Barber. Jamie started out as a camera assistant and worked his way up to director and director of photography. Jamie's got a lot of behind-the-scenes crew stories and great advice. So sit back, relax, and let's start the show. Jamie Barber, take one. <laughs> Hello. Okay, um, here are the tough questions. All right. Answer. Uh, Ask away. How did you get started? Did, was it in Panavision? Pan. Um, okay, so the story goes that I was um, I was forbidden to be in the film business. My uh, my adopted father Jack was the you know was with Panavision vice president charge of manufacturing and engineering and he when he had started with the company it was the film business was big and you everyone was studio and you had long long-term contracts and so it was a very stable life very wonderful business and then slowly during the 70s 60s and 70s independent filmmaking and so you would have to look for a new job every six months and he did not want that for me so they had sort of created this life where I was going to become a dentist. So, and I followed it, followed their program pretty well, went to UCLA, started studying psychobiology, and then I realized that these fingers were not going to work as dentist's fingers. Actually, I was going to be an orthodontist. So I quit school, didn't tell them, and we had family friends um, who worked uh, in the commercial business, and so I started loading film um, in the commercial business. Didn't tell my parents, so they kept um, paying my bills. And then eventually I came home on Thanksgiving, uh, at Thanksgiving, and all the family cars were there, which meant that they had a family meeting and I wasn't invited, which meant it was about me. And then Dad said, how's school? How's dental school? And I said, I'm not there. I said, oh, it's doing fine. And he says, you're not there. And I said, yes. So the agreement was I would go work at Panavision for two years to learn if I was going to become a camera assistant, to learn cameras and lenses. And so I went to work for them for two years, and then they fired me and made me go back and work out in the field, which was... And the training was the most... was probably the best training I would ever have. Because literally I could fix a camera in the middle of nowhere. Caleb, uh, Caleb Deschanel would always tell the story of... We were in the jungles of Malaysia doing Anna and the King, and I kept a Panaflex running for... Um, three days until the replacement can come with just a paper clip. So, so that was that was really my, and even then I really was just looking for something to do until I found a career. But then meeting the camera assistants coming through Panavision, meeting the focus pullers, and then that just like sucked me in. Did me in too. It's fun. Uh, I was the same way. We would go on location, and uh, I knew if I had boards and I had a few other things that we'd keep that sucker running. Yep. You know? In fact, in India, Tom Ackerman, Panavision guy, decided to take Aerie. And everybody in India was like, oh, we wanted you to bring Panavision. And we're like, I want to bring Panavision. <laughs> Long story short, it goes, the, um, for, uh, the camera went down uh, two weeks before we were uh, uh, ending. And we had to bring in another Indian uh, 
Panaflex, or, um, I'm sorry, Airy, uh, because the module went down. And you couldn't just swap it out. We couldn't right. get, get it from anywhere. And the rods didn't fit because they had, what, 15-inch rods? And they do 17. Right. So 17 millimeter, yeah. Some weird thing. And I said, if we had Panaflex, not a problem. Now, it's funny. It's one of the things, one of the, one of the things that there was that, um, in, in Hollywood at the time, there was this big misnomer that Panavision and Aeroflex were always competing against each other. But Panavision was the largest owner of Aeroflex equipment in the world. They owned more airy gear. And the relationship between Arnold and Richter and Panavision was spectacular. I, I, met, our, I met them more than once in the offices upstairs at Panavision where they would come in. And then they were you know, secretly making lenses for Panavision before they became, you know, before they, they admitted it openly that the, the, that Z, the Z series were uh, Zeiss manufactured glass, but Z, they were, Airflex was manufacturing stuff for them a long time before. Really? Yeah. Well, I always, when I looked at the Z series, I was like, hmm, these are short, like the Airy lenses. Yeah, no, they were all, they were all Zeiss design. Interesting. Yeah, it wasn't until later when they decided to go to um, to Leica, to uh, uh, Primos, uh -huh. which are all Leica designs. Cool. So why did you get fired from Panavision? Um, because my dad figured that, well, actually, I snuck out and I was doing, um, I snuck out and started working with uh, Scotty Miller, Warren Miller's son, and we were doing commercials. And my name showed up on an order sheet. And so um, at that point, dad said, can you... Are you going to be able to make a career of it? And uh, I said, yeah, I think I've got some people that are willing to hire me. And the rule at Panavision at that time was that you could not work inside the company and outside. And so Gottschalk then took me aside and said, we'll support you however you want, but you're fired. Good luck. And I went, thanks. So it was a, a blessing firing kind of Oh, yeah. Thing. Well, it was, I knew, I'd already, we had yeah. committed. Yeah. I'd committed to, my dad had committed to, you know, or I committed to my dad to the two years. And the two years was up. And I was, you know, I was, wanted to go back to. So would you start a uh, loader? Oh, one of the things that I've learned from all of the, I would say, probably the most significant of uh, anything was actually learned from a director, which was uh, Tony Scott. And uh, Tony's got three-quarter backlight all the time. But the one thing that he taught me more than anything else was that as long as I was looking through the camera, I would not die. <laughs> okay. And I went, thank you very much. And then he definitely put us in, space, in places. And later in my career, you know, I've always liked to do the stuff that, that is crazy. That as long as you are looking through that box, everything else blowing up around you, going crazy, as long as you're looking through that box, you're fine. Mm, it's all right. made not to hit you in that box. But as soon as you take your eye away from it and begin to look around and panic about where you are, then that's when you're going to have problems. And I'm like, all right, dude. And there have been more than once where I've taken my eye away from the camera or done something and just went, thank you, Mr. Scott, because I kept myself down into that camera and stuff flying around me.
Well, you also don't get distracted by it either. It's like, <clears throat> and if it is going to kill you, you're never going to know it. No, exactly. You're not going to see it coming. No. That's the bottom line. It's like you don't hear it. What else have you learned? From from all through the business? Yeah. Oh, my God. It's the most, it's, well, you know, all the technical parts about, I hate zoom lenses because the zoom lens, or zoom lenses are the things that, if you use a zoom, it takes the, it takes the camera and moves it, it takes the character, moves it towards the camera, which is, and then if you dolly, you're taking the, the person watching the film and moving it towards something of significance. So that was one of the first ones. Um, with Michael Chapman, I learned that it really doesn't matter what you do, that you can always print it into the windows that you want. He, uh, when we were doing Rising Sun, he used an old... An ultimeter. Oh no, he used an old Spectra that had the slides, and we had moved from outside to inside, and our gaffer was saying what the reading was, and Chappie was saying what the reading was, and they were two very different readings. And so, I went up to Chappie and I said, "Let me see your meter." And we, he undid the slide, undid the thing, and I took, you know, because he always kept a tape over the slide. Took the slide out, and he goes. Ah shit! And I go, you didn't change the slide, did you? And he goes, Nah, this is still a. And so we immediately, you know, took all the film, rushed it to the lab, had it printed, went and looked at it, and Chappie came out of it going, Well, we're rewriting that film. It's the best stuff we shot the whole movie. So. Was it over or under? Over or under? It was. Uh, it was under. Oh, so you liked it, okay? Yeah. So it was great, and actually. The other thing was when I deep when I when I moved to DP one day, um, I was shooting a TV series called Roswell, and we had um, I had been sh we'd shot the scene outside, and we were doing the reverse on stage, and it was an overcla overcast cloudy day, and they hadn't tran they hadn't put notes on the on the camera report to tell the timer that it that. It was um, when we went inside that it was to match to the overcast, cloudy day. So I, uh, I called the, the colorist, as I usually do on my way into work, and I said, so how was scene 16, you know, 16? And he goes, it was a great night scene. It looks beautiful. I said, whoa, 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 it's not a night scene. It's to match this overcast, overcast cloudy day that we did two days ago. Um, then they get the note, and he goes, no, hold on. I hear, I hear the telecending machine getting, and I hear it being rewound. Then I hear typing. He goes, it's a gorgeous overcast cloudy day. I said, how does it look as a sunny day? And he goes, hold on. Goes, it's a gorgeous sunny day. I said, so you printed that same scene as a cloudy day, as a night scene, and a sunny day, and it's all usable. And he goes, Yep. I said, can you lay it off on a separate and send that to me and then just put the cloudy day to the studio? And they said, sure. And so I, they, I loaded it up as soon as it got there, and I looked at it, and each version was usable. Film or video? This was video. Yeah. Well, that's another question. Uh, well, actually, it was film that was transferred on the television. Right, on the television. And so I went, at that point, I went to my crew, and I said, I don't want to know. If you've messed up, <laughs> you've got, like, 
a stop or two. Anything beyond that, once you get to like three stops, then I may want to know about it. But if it's all within a stopper or two stop range, just make a note to the colorist to make it match and you're fine. And then he goes, they go, okay. And at that point I realized that my, sometimes uh, my nitpicking didn't need to be, you know, that there were other processes down the line that could fix it. And then I worked with, um, I was with Doug Lyman, and we were doing a pilot for Mr. and Mrs. Smith. They wanted to make it into a series. And we had been shooting all night long, and the sun had come up. And I told Doug, I said, Doug, this is it. I got, we got shadows. It's no longer going to match. And he said, all right. And he kept shooting. And I said, Doug, it's not going to match anymore. We're done. And he goes, all right. And he kept shooting. I go, Doug. And he goes, all right, all right, this will be the last take. And we did it. And the sun was like, I mean, it wasn't hitting us. We were still in shadow. But I said, there's shadows on the ground. So dailies arrive. And I called the colorist right away. And I said, listen, just make it match. And the dailies arrive. And Doug and, Doug and I, he calls me into the motorhome. And he, we're watching dailies together. And we get to the point where the night scene is over with in the daylight. And you can hear me on tape going, Doug, it's daytime. We've got to stop. And he goes, look it, it's night. And I go, yeah, it's night, but let me get the colorist on the line. Let me tell you how long he had to work to make it look like night. And he goes, no, I don't trust you ever again, Jamie. <laughs> he goes, I said, oh, Doug, please. But again, you realize it, you know, it was freeing up. And that was, uh, that was fun. That's cool. Well, I mean, now that you... I mean, you're one of the DPs that have worked through film in the digital world. Yep. Not, a lot of the young guys never did film, but now what, what is the difference now in terms of your flexibility, or if there is any? I'm, yes. You're much, it's actually, with digital, you're much more flexible. You can do so much, different, so much more. Uh, and as we discussed before you rolled the camera, I do think the one thing that I do miss the most not shooting film is the ability for a reflex, to look through reflex, to see the shot in reality. I understand now in the digital world that with um, you know viewfinders that are mo small monitors and stuff like that, you're still seeing the same thing that the, everyone else is seeing and, and that the end product will be. But I think in film, that moment of just seeing it through the viewfinder, through a reflex viewfinder, was so much more emotional. I think some of the emotion has gone from it, but for a DP, the flexibility now is spectacular. I mean, when we shot in, when I was doing Allegiance, when we shot in Rome, we would literally load in, if we were changing locations, we would load the actor in a taxi, and we would get in the taxi with the camera and then roll as he went. And with small, actually we used a small uh, digital recorder for the audio, and it was fantastic. It's really Rome out there. And there was no insert car. We were just running around Rome having a great time. And I think the digital cameras now are getting smaller and smaller and, and, and um, with their better electronics, it makes it so much fun. Because you really can go out there with a limited, a smaller lighting deal. You can use the natural light much better and, and have, um, as long as you embrace it, and you understand that's what you're going for. Uh, on Covert Affairs, we had 
Piper Perbo and ran all over the world with her. And as long as I stuck stuck her in backlight with some fill, you're good. Doesn't need to. Uh, you don't need to fight it. She's great, isn't she? Oh, she was the best. Yeah, we did a movie with her. Her first movie, actually. Did you do Coyote? Uh, no, we did uh, Rock Rocking Bullwinkle. Yeah, we would Paris, Rome, Hong Kong, all over the world, and she would. She we developed this thing where she would wear um, boy shorts, um, like her boy shorts, and wear um, an undershirt that was you know. Uh, sports bra sort of deal and would change clothes in the back of cafes and you know we had a makeup artist that we that ran around with us but she would she did not need a trailer we you know it was great she was in a biplane that actually nosed into the ground yes she tells that story does she yeah and and it was like nothing we have photographs of that yeah and I'm like she was smiling yeah, she tells the story. Does she that, really? Yeah. And well, we could have killed her. Yeah, yeah that's what she did. She was just, I didn't know. I could have died. Okay. Yeah. It was the only time I've ever put my back to a scene, you know, because you're the camera assistant. So Steve had me, it was it was so run and gun at that point. It was it was sort of getting out of hand. But we, we were uh, on the back end of the plane, so we knew all the wash was coming, right? So he had me with a, uh, we didn't have a spinner at the time. We were in Sacramento. Air can just to try to keep as much off as possible, and I thought, well, okay, we're gonna get blasted. I'm gonna put my back to it. so we hear stopped just, and we're like, turned around, and there it was, dug I mean, it over. Was literally like that. Like yeah, and uh, an hour later, it was back up and flying. Oh, well, that's the scary part. Yeah, with you, Piper in it. Well, they wow. went over and they kind of hammered and the prop back into the right position and stuff. And, and we wow. thought, well, that's the end of that for the day. And, and, but they were, and the guy said, no, it's fine. And he's flying again. So the, like, are you kidding me? And then she got in it, which surprised me. Talk about a trooper. Yeah. You know, after this plane, it really took a pretty hard hit. And the prop was, he literally, like a... Took a two-by-four. shop, like just banging it back in. Wow. <laughs> yeah, but she was a trooper. She got in it. And we're like, really? And then it's just buzzing right around but I did have one situation where I had to bail and the camera got taken out by a car. So yeah. Once. <clears throat> we, we, we were running for our we lives. We were sort of prepared for it. It was the second take, and we knew the stunt guy would amp it up. So, uh, you know, you'd yeah, always know. Oh, yeah. So we knew, and so we were kind of ready to go, and we went. And it, he took out two cameras, right? A, yeah, he a did. Star and a, uh, yeah. yeah, and we were literally running for our lives. It was a flying car. And tumbling car. And tumbling, anyway. yeah. But that's one of the only times. Yeah, no, that's, that's even, a good story, though. So. No, even Days of Thunder, we did. We had one where we, they flipped the car end over end at 130 miles an hour. We had a tractor and K rail, and just enough room for the camera to pan and tilt. And when those race cars, they get loose, and they get on the grass, they're on their own. And so we did okay with take one, but Tony didn't like it, so take two. Didn't, Tony didn't like what the car did, so take two. And we had negotiated a pretty big. Danger bump. I was a focus puller, and uh, car, car started coming, boom, ba boom, ba boom, and another car is heading towards us, and the key grip goes now. And we jumped underneath a tractor, and everything comes to a stop. Nothing hit the camera, and it's cut, cut, cut. And I run up and I turn off the camera, and we go back to Tony. And Tony's looking at all these monitors. And they replay our shot. 
and it could not have been better because it's when the car that was flipping over with the stunt guy when it finally lands it landed where we had left the camera pointed and where I had left the focus and Tony Scott just went nuts. Oh my God, that's perfect! You guys are the best. And we didn't want to tell him. <laughs> we were all under a tractor, <laughs> and that's just where the camera had stopped, and had nothing to do with how, how brave we were. Thank you, Tony. We are professional. Yes, we did. It's like lucky he was so far away he didn't see that we was, but he was so happy with us. He's like took us all out to took that took us out to dinner that night. Wow, was, like, that, was Days of Thunder the NASCAR? Car? Yes. Yeah, NASCAR, big cars, heavy cars. Yeah, it was fun. Wow. Also, yeah, yeah. Like, he definitely yeah. knows, and he knows the story well. Yeah, he does now. Yeah. Oh no, he was he he later that night at dinner with some alcohol. We all <laughs> <laughs> the truth serum. Yeah, we all confessed. Oh, you did. Okay. Oh well. Oh yeah. All right. So, what did you learn uh, from somebody like not to do? Like, okay, I'm never gonna do that. Oh, oh gosh. You mean as a DP or a director? Anything. Uh, um, okay. So, actually, that's one of the things that I talk the most about. One of the things that I've learned as a DP is not to do. Okay. And one, it's not to get upset because I've watched too many of them uh, really, really, really get upset about their image, about what's happening out there. And somebody, you know, someone leaving a piece of equipment in the shot or something turning off at the wrong moment and them just going over the deep, going over the deep end. We are not doing open heart surgery. No one is going to... You know, if that, if we have to retake it, nothing bad's going to happen to anybody. It's, it's fine. We're going to retake, we're going to do multiple takes anyway. So just be calm about it and, and, and move on. And it's, um, you know, it's much easier. That's, I, that stress is horrible. I can attest to that having worked with you as a, as a DP, that the worst it gets is like, kind of a joking thing yeah. like, like what the hell was that <laughs> exactly. but it was never like you were about to be pummeled no I've watched and I've watched you know I've worked with some pretty high volatile DPs and watching them and it just creates this atmosphere on the set that's just horrible and you go alright so that was probably one of the biggest things um, and then always treat you know everybody on the set has something to do and, and treat them all because they're all there to work and they're all there to they're all there to make the project better. So if you treat them, if you start treating them badly, then they're going to react badly. And you, at some point in time, you're going to need them. So you, you know, I've always I've always told my second assistants and and back in the old day loaders that you got to be nice to the teamsters, you got to be nice to the production manager, you got to be nice to the accountant. At some point in time, you're going to need all three of those to help you out. You know, when you need that run to Panavision, if those people don't like you, that there's teamsters, it's not going to get there very quick, and you're going to be hung out to dry. That's absolutely true. That's very wise advice. But that's also kind of you're kind of focusing around what our seminar is about, film 5.0. That we're talking about all the departments and why they 
what they do and why they work together and how they work together. And why they matter. Yeah, because you know, when you look down the, the list when the credits are running, you know, Teamsters are way down there, accountants way down there, but they matter. Oh, completely. They, they do. I can't tell you the amount of times where it's like stuff has happened and you just go, I need that, I need some help now. And they'll, they'll do it. No, I, I, without crew, I mean, I know a lot of people complain that there's a lot of them and all of that, but there are times where you need them. You don't want to, there's things going on, and, and it's really not that need of not wanting to wait. There's a lot of money being spent. And so if I need those many people to work, and it's, it's great. You know, it's not the same as it was. Uh, you know, I was lucky enough I got to work with Gordon Willis for, for a short period of time on one project. And Gordy, you know, ran that set so there wasn't a, one noise on that set when he was lighting. And each lamp had a lamp operator. And, but you realize that he was, he was creating amazing work. And to see real, to see grips that knew how to grip, that was just the first time I saw Dickie Dietz actually work. He just went, wow, that is, that is, that is so different than, than just guys off the street, you know, to rig something and make it perfect and, and do it in such a small amount of time. You go, that is, that is spectacular. That's what a grip should be. Yeah, we interviewed Michael Koo, who lives just... Oh, I know Koo. Yeah, he was a good interview. He was a great interview, and that's exactly what he talked about. He goes, I know how to cut a light. I know what to do. Yeah. And you, we all know when we're in the presence of people that really know their job, right? Oh, yeah. No, it's we were doing, with Caleb, we were doing um, Hope Floats. And Caleb and I, they, we were lighting, they were lighting a bedroom scene, and Caleb and I left to do some driving shots. And we came back... And Caleb walked on the set and just went, oh, my God, Colin, this lighting is spectacular. It's exactly what I wanted. It's beautiful. And he turned to walk away. And Dickie turned to the grips and goes, all right, guys, tear out all our stuff. And Caleb goes, whoa, 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 whoa. What's, what, 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 what's that all about? He goes, I want you to see what Colin's lighting looks like without our work. <laughs> That's great. Because it was one 18K <laughs> sitting on a balcony, and everything else was dicky. Well, he's right. I mean, it, it takes... It was a, Colin Campbell. Yeah, yeah no, Colin it was. Campbell, it, we it took, yeah, we worked with yeah, him. He's yeah. Great, yeah. yeah, It took a team, and it was all of that that it was like, no, that's just one light. Let me show you what all the rest of it really looks like. Well, that's a good statement in terms of, you know, when the grips, when we talk to the grips and they describe what they do, it's about controlling it. Yes. You know, like, I mean, the light is here, but somebody's got it. I mean, those shadows, those the shadows on the oh, wall. They were, I mean, we never used to care about that on old TV, but now we do. It's no, like, it's, it's like message in a bottle. Yeah. Dickie, and, uh, Dickie and Caleb, we had a little bit of time on our hands. Dickie, they would put up heat shield, and they had Vaseline mixed with lanolin, with aniline dyes, aniline dyes, and they would literally paint shadows on the heat shield on the, so they would have these beautiful shadows on the walls of trees and stuff like that and it, you just went wow I love Dickie he was such an artist we did when uh, I think it was on on Hope Floats when we when I noticed all of the interiors if you ever seen the movie 
the interior shadows of the house, when you look at all the interior shadows, they're multi-paned, multi-lighted glass. But if you see the exterior shots, there's not one multi-pane window in that house. It was all dicky with, with two-inch black paper tape and empty frames making these gorgeous window shadows everywhere. And I go, Dickie, there's not one. He goes, shush, better looking. <laughs> I actually liked Billy Friedman. I was warned that we were so warned that he was yes. so terrible. He, he was, was fine. fine. He, I had a great time with him. Yeah. Yeah. And I'll never forget the moment. There was a moment where, you know, the apple boxes, how Billy has the apple boxes. Yeah, yeah. And, a, and it was Caleb and Billy, and, you know, I was op operating. It was in the woods. It was right before Benicio. Broke his hand? Bro yeah, did the thing with his hand. And um, I had, we'd done the shot, and I'd walked back to talk to Billy and Caleb, and something was going on. And Caleb got pissed and literally went, was getting, out of, getting up from the apple box to go yell at somebody. And Billy grabbed him and sat him down, sat Caleb down, and said, It's okay, Caleb. We're going to do it again. It's okay. And I went, was yeah. that Billy freaking just yeah. calling Kayla Deschanel <laughs> down? Yeah. What the hell is that? You, you Where, what, 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 it, was there some time travel involved here? I mean, you would have thought there would be two peas in a pod. Oh, yeah, but, but it was like, it was I'll not. never forget. And I, and I walked away from that movie loving Billy. He was great. Yeah, I liked him, too. Was that I your first time working with him? Yeah, I'd yeah he worked. was great. I'd 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 never worked with him, either. I thought. And great. I had heard all the horror stories. We had, too. But no, he was he was fine. I mean, I well, even out on the bridge, he was making sure that the extras had food and stuff. Oh yeah, no, he and was. And I commented to him, I said, "I've never worked with a director that was worried about the extras." He goes, "Well, they well, they're working for us." Yeah, yeah. no, it's Billy okay. was great. Yeah, that yeah. Was good. no, I I I enjoyed so Billy, it. Billy, if you're listening, yeah, yes. kudos, kudos. And even with Caleb, I mean, he has his ups. And, I mean, Caleb is really a good person. I mean. Great could, parties. I mean, he can be a really good right? guy. Great Sunday I mean, he has his moments. Oh, yeah. He has his moments, as you know. You yes. know, you were. For, but he, but on the outside of the film world, he's really a nice man. I oh mean, yeah, no, we would. Yeah, did he, he? Was he calling you? We were having dinner before you came up. It was a Sunday night, and he says, "No, no, 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 no. I'll find somebody that knows what the perfect wine is." And I wasn't no, not sure was, if it was yeah, that no. Dissler. No, Dissler. Alan Dissler. Yeah, Dissler. Yeah. Dissler. Mo. Yeah. And he was on the phone, and yeah, I was, was like, Dissler, yeah. "He's calling all the way I back to, to L.A." I used to set. I used to set. We used to. I used to. We were both much younger because I was Alan's uh, loader for a little while, oh, right. the second assistant. And I, we would literally, I would literally set up dates, so we would double date just so because we would start at Alan's house, just so that Alan would have had to go to his wine locker and pick out some really good wine. <laughs> I would really, I felt, I felt sort of dirty at times for doing that, but not really. Yeah. I was like. Why not use it? You got it. Use yeah, it. yeah. But he, I mean, he seems to be the guy with wine. So oh no, yeah. he was definitely. He had some yeah. amazing wine. Because that's not the first job I've ever been on. Who else? Uh, Harry Garvin used to call him yeah. too. Yeah, right? Harry used to. Harry used to call him all the time. Yeah, about yeah no, and Alan. then we all worked together on one of those. I don't know. Oh, oh yeah, Distler was with us on one of those. So yeah, I don't remember which one it was. Yeah, he's a good guy. So. Oh, yeah. he was. He was so much fun. I had a great, he was he was he was the one who was responsible for moving up to moving me up to being a, a focus pour. Oh, on what show? Uh, it was called Coupe de Ville. I saw that in your IMDb. For some reason, my eye went right there. Right, it was a thing called Coupe de Ville, and we uh, I came out. I was a, a second assistant, and I was we were just finishing Revenge with Tony Scott, and 
Alan said, I need somebody to come here. And actually, I was started off as just uh, like a remote head tech. And then they started saying, well, you want to pull focus? We need an extra camera. And then moved my way to where it was he and I, A and B camera. So it was great. In retrospect, there's all that stuff. Like, as a second assistant, I would have stayed a second assistant much longer. Because, come on, the money was still pretty good. Yeah. And you did not have, the responsibility was not that big. Yeah. Come on, paperwork, clap some slate and a lens. You could do that just as, you know, as a focus puller, you couldn't, yeah. you know, you couldn't come in hungover anymore as much as you could. Oh, no, and then in those days, having to wait till daily is the next day. Or, oh, um, my gosh. And then why, why, why did they wait to do their... The 180 millimeter close-up of Kevin Costner until like the second to the last shot of the day. Yeah. You know, everyone's yeah. tired and crazy. It's 16 hours. You're oh like, yeah. Oh my gosh! It's like you, know, you do the wide shots and then slowly work your way in, and then finally those anamorphic close-ups, and you're like, could we not have done that before lunch? And then after that, I never turned, never went back. Just pulled focus. And you did a couple Jan de Bont movies. I did mainly. Jan was his director. I was the okay. focus puller. I never. I only worked. We, as you all know, whenever you get back in town, you you get called and you go day play on all the all the movies. You know, all of us were in the feature world. Yeah. So I went in and played a little bit with Jan on like, but you know, I think the first lethal weapon was Jan and stuff like that. And then Hunt for Red October. Oh, that's your favorite. That's movie. my one of my favorites. That's why when my, we were interviewing Michael Kuhn, like, tell me more, oh, tell yeah, me he did more. That yeah. yeah, I mean, and then he showed us a shot that he had of uh, Alec and uh, Sean on the gimbal. Right. And I was like, oh my God, that is so cool. So you were, you were B camera on that? Uh, no, I came in for like two weeks, three weeks. Because Cal was... Uh, Cal was the A camera. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. The, the man you can never trust. <laughs> why is that? I didn't know. I only met him once. Oh, no, you, you know... Cal, the joke with Cal is, you know, you, you know you can tell when Cal's lying. How's that? His lips are moving. <laughs> <laughs> so Cal, if you hear this. Yeah, Cal, because he's, he's the largest practical joker. I oh, mean, was I he really? Know. Oh, yeah. I yeah. didn't know that. We were doing, um, we were going somewhere on, um, Cal, we were doing, Cal was doing some extra stuff on Last Boy Scout, and we were going to go shoot a football game. And so we were prepping the equipment at Panavision. And my first wife, second wife, second wife, was bringing me my bringing my clothing and stuff because I was leaving for San Diego, and ran into Cal. We were in the prep room, and within minutes they had gone to school together. They had grown up around the corner from each other, and all of that. And then Terry walked, went left, and I looked at Cal and I go, "You did not." And he goes, "No, I didn't." <laughs> <laughs> Cal just would do, would just wind people up. He had that ability to do that. <laughs> On a crew van, he was with Dave Lukenbach was convincing, you know, was telling Dave how their frillneck lizard ranch was making so much money that they, he needed investors to open up a second one. And extras were asking Cal where they could invest. <laughs> Dave didn't fall for it though. Well, no, it was Lugenbach knew that it was because yeah. it was he was saying, Dave, how's there, you know, your investment in my frill neck lizard ranch is going great. That's hilarious. And I was like, oh my God, Cal. <laughs> so my biggest moment of revenge with Cal was um, we were doing um, Speed Two. Okay. 
and we were on uh, the underwater set. At, we were at the set at Sony, and there was the ship. We had flooded the set, and to get, we were doing a shot. We were looking back, and so to get to where we needed to have the cameras, because we were all handheld, you had to walk across the set, and the set went down a little bit. But it was enough, because, you know, Cal's not the tallest man in the world. It was enough that when you got to the dip, it was going to put Cal underwater. And so I'm walking, and I start, I hunch down a little bit, and I walk. And when I get to the dip, I raise up so it looks like it's just all flat. And I get to the other side, and I'm holding it. And Dave Lukenbach was, was Cal's operator, and Mike Dean was mine. And I'm waiting, and I'm waiting, and I go, here comes Cal. And he's walking, and he's walking, and he gets to that dip, and just, poof, he's underwater. <laughs> but the camera stayed above, and it was like straight out of a cartoon, where it was like, the camera was going across the dip, and then he, Cal, finally came out of the water. <laughs> and he goes, I will never trust you again. And I said, touche. Cal. Right. Just, you know, That's a funny story. That's great. Oh, it was brilliant. I worked on Far and Away with Dave. He was an assistant then. Yeah. Looking back, yeah. I prepped uh, uh, Flatliners in Chicago. I was one of the prep techs. That's, oh, right. That was the place. That I was young. Was it? Yeah. 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 I prepped uh, the gear. Uh, I think everything came in from California. They unpacked it. I helped um, reprep it and stuff, and uh, that's where I met Cal. Yeah, Cal tells that, you know, the story of the on Hunt, on Hunt for October, they were in the big raft. They were in the raft, and uh, the 50-millimeter where they wanted to put the uh, the 50 anamorphic on. And so Cal was, you know, had the, the camera and he was putting the 50 and Jan turned around and uh, <laughs> hit hit Cal and the 50 went over. <gasps> and Jan goes, so, so, it's the 50 ready, Cal, the 50 ready. And Cal goes, no, but the 40 will be. <laughs> and he just, Cal just put the 40 on and handed it to Jan. Wow. Oh, my God. Because that 50, was 50 Primo? Yeah. That was a honking lens. It was a big lens, yeah. and it went straight to the bottom. Yeah, I was going to say, it, was it ever, sunk really bad. Yeah, it was <laughs> ever found. So you, that was out in the open ocean then? Yeah, it was out off of the Long Beach Harbor. Wow. We put, an, we put a whole camera in the ocean in Hawaii. On the, yeah, on but we got Georgia, it out. Georgia the Jungle. It was still attached to the dolly. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> yeah. Oh. But, uh, Doug Ryan. The, but the, oh, my the, the God. The funniest part of that story, and... and the producers were on another raft. We were in like a river, but it was saltwater. But the producers were watching, and the dolly wasn't tied down. And we were Doug, on a barge. He climbed right. out on it, you know, like on a bengi, and climbed out on it, and it went over. And, and he went first. And, then, and, and then the, the dolly grip had just moved away for a split second, it. so nobody was holding But the funniest part about that story, I can do it with the helicopter, is the, um, I saw Doug Ryan go into the water. And his thought was that camera was going to be right behind him, and it was. And he was underwater going, <laughs> like, like, looking up with his eyes wide open. And I just, I started laughing so hard, and the camera's in the water, and the producer, and I'm like, dying. And everybody's grabbing for it. And they're like, what is he laughing at? So, so we got it back on, and I couldn't stop laughing because of his face. Oh, my God. But, but I it, love that. He thought, I said, what were you what what was going on? He said, well, I thought the camera of the dolly was going to be on top of me. I, was, yeah. I said, well, it was, but we all grabbed it. And we had the Hawaiian watermen, you know, oh, right. from Moyamea Bay and all that, and just yep. everybody's just jumping it, in and uh, grabbing Brian, stuff. Brian, uh, I don't know. Who was my guy? Brian Kualama? 
probably. They were the guys, whoever yeah. they were. They were on jet skis following us, right. and they just all dove in, and the camera was still running. It was actually taking up film with water in wow. it. Wow. So it was, as you know, a mess. Yep. But it was sort of brackish water, but um, they took the film and the camera and... Well, I made the mistake. I didn't listen right to the away. logo guys and put it in salt water. Yeah. You know, we we just kind of cleaned it up, and, and we got we sent it back. We heard years later that it was trash. Yeah. Everything about it. Well, especially was it a Panaflex? Yeah. Yeah, there's magnesium in that, yeah. uh, in the housing, and the, the salt water will just eat the magnesium. I mean, the local guys said, put it in, in salt water. And they go, yeah, you keep it submerged so it doesn't react. I, didn't, I didn't listen to them, and I learned. Yeah. What's your favorite story? My favorite story? Yeah, what is, what's the best thing ever? I mean, because we all have a million of them. Yes. Um, Film-wise, I would think... Okay, well, so early on, uh, we were doing Kindergarten Cop. Yeah. Chappie. Yeah, Chappie. Chappie was in it, too. Yeah, he was. Oh, he was. Chappie was almost in every movie. Yeah. He, yeah. He He's oh, got a lot of screen credits. Right. He did that. I forgot about yeah. that. Yeah, he did. He was in uh, Doc Hollywood. Mm-hmm. He was in... So we are... Uh, we're in Astoria, Oregon, and... Arnold one day comes up and he goes, uh, Jamie, you're a little chubby. (laughs) Thanks, Arnold. He goes, "Uh, I've got no one to work out with me. Would you come, uh, would you come work out with me? You know, you could use it. And I (laughs) said, not my, you know, I I would love, I think there are people all over the world who would love to work out with you, Arnold, but that's not good, that's not me. And he's like, no, 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 you come, you come, you come. (laughs) So uh, finally, after a lot of persistence, I agreed. So every day of rap, I would dump the camera, and I'd be the first one out so that Arnold would, you know, by the time he got out of wardrobe and makeup, I was nowhere to be seen. So he wouldn't bother you. Yeah, so he wouldn't bother <laughs> So it lasted, about, it lasted about two weeks, and finally Arnold goes, you're never going to work out with me. And I said, no, Arnold, you know, I'm, I'm not. It's not a... So we're now in Hollywood. We're now at Universal Studios. And the house is now, the house, the interior of the house for Doc Holly, for uh, uh, Kindergarten Cop is, is in the, uh, it's built on stage. And we're doing a steady cam shot, and it's Randy Nolan. And Arnold comes running up the stairs. We're at the top of the stairs. Arnold comes running up the stairs, runs down a hallway, looks in the little boy's room. Little boy's not there. Turns around, comes running back down the hallway. We go running back down the hallway, too. We go into a bedroom. Arnold comes by us, runs down the stairs. So that's the shot. And uh, I think the boom man was Steve Calamesa. And so we rehearse it once. It's all fine. So we get ready to go. We roll. Arnold comes up the stairs. We go down the hallway with him. He turns. We come running back. Steve Calamesa, boom pole, gets, hits the door jam. Steve comes to a stop. I hit Steve. Steady cam hits me. Arnold hits the steady cam. We all go down in a pile. And Ivan Reitman is directing. And Ivan, what the fuck is going on in there? Arnold grabs the camera, looks right at it so they can see it in Video Village. And he goes, Chubby, the first assistant cameraman got stuck in the doorway and none of the rest of us could get through. Ouch. Wow. Chubby. So so I looked at Arnold and I go, next time I guess I work out. And he goes, it might be a good idea, Chubby. And so from that point on, the call sheet said, Chubby. You're kidding me. No. <laughs> oh, man. So, and then later in life, I would run into Arnold, you know, down in Santa Monica, at Chatsis or whatever, and, or in Venice. And, so, how's Chubby? <laughs> <laughs> so, 
said, I'm in fine, lo- governor. In a loving way. Yeah. So, yeah. so that was that was probably I was you know I was very young at that point, and that was one of my one of my best. And then I have one other, but it's not. Um, I don't know if it, it's a. It's a, it's not socially appropriate nowadays, I guess. With Phyllis Diller. Oh, you work with Phyllis Diller? Yeah, I worked with Phyllis Diller. Oh my God, I love Phyllis. She's great. And uh, I was very young. I was really young. It was uh, uh, before I, uh, when we were doing the non-union movies, before they, the union let me in. And uh, I was uh, setting Phyllis's mark. And I really was like maybe the third movie I'd ever done. And I was down on my knees in front of Phyllis. And she grabbed the back of my head and pulled it towards her crotch. And she goes, you want to make some money while you're down there, kid? I can, I can certainly picture that. And then did that Phyllis Diller laugh, and I just, I turned beet red. And I went, okay, welcome to the film business. Yeah. This is, this is different. Reverse sexual harassment. Yeah. Very much so. Yeah, there was, she had no, uh, what, what were we talking about before? Filter? filter no filter at all. Yeah. I mean, in a good way. She was just yes. hilarious. Wow. What was the movie? Because she didn't do many movies. It was called she? The Pink Motel. It was Phil Stiller and Slim Pickens. Slim what? Pickens. Yeah, which was, that was like, I was in awe working with Slim Pickens. Yeah. Because yeah. uh, to, to listen to, you know, and I immediately went, okay, so tell me, what was it like to do, you know, Dr. Strangelove? And he goes, I'll tell you, the story went that um, Stanley wanted me to do the movie. And, you know, he negotiated with my agent and all of that stuff. And he goes, so it was now we were getting ready to start the movie. And Stanley and I are sitting there talking. And Stanley told me, he goes, fire your agent. And he goes, why? He goes, I would have paid a lot more for you. Really? Yeah. And he goes, and that movie... My dressing room went from having tile on the walls and a toilet to being having carpet on the walls and a star on the door in my name. Wow. It changed my whole career. I went, wow. Very cool. Yeah, it was great. Well, he was certainly a classic part of it. I mean, he sort of made the film. He was great. Yeah. Yeah. That's funny. Yeah, that's one of the things. Because my... uh, it's one of my biggest regrets in the film in the film industry was because um, my dad and Stanley knew each other. Oh, um, dad had helped uh, design some equipment for Stanley for like two thousand and one, the rollover rig and stuff like that. Um, had helped with, and um, I had always wanted to work with Stanley. And we, uh, Caleb and I, were finishing up um, Anna and the King, and we were in London, and I was prepping the gear, and Caleb had gone to Stanley to have a meeting. And Caleb came back and said, we're going to do AI. And I went, great. And then Stanley passed away before oh, we got man. to do AI. Yeah, I was going to say, that's about the time he died. I was thinking that before you said it. So yeah. That's too bad. Because well, it was like, that was going to be, that was going to be the, uh, you know, finally to, to live out that dream to work with Stanley. Oh, my God, it was going to be great. Yeah, that would have yeah. been cool. And then uh, later, uh, just a couple of years ago, or uh, a year and a half ago, I was uh, we were, I was hired to do the second unit on the Condor, and we ended up going to Jordan and shoot, shot uh, this whole desert sequence in uh, in Wadi Rum, which is where they shot uh, uh, 
a Lawrence of Arabia. Lawrence, yeah. oh. And it was amazing. I had the whole thing downloaded on my iPad. And when we were scouting, it was like, where's this? And they said, well, you know, like the rock that they rode, that they go around before they head to Aqaba. And uh, they go, it's right over here. And they showed me, it, and we were like, okay, we're going to shoot here, right? Yeah. He said, okay, we'll shoot here. And I've made them take me everywhere, and it was just glorious. It was just, oh, my God, this is Lawrence of Arabia. And I got on the phone with, my, with Jack, with Dad, and I was like, here I am. I'm in this spot. You know, because that was his, one of Dad's big things was the, that, that shimmer lens that they made for... The, the uh, one and only lens, for, right? Yeah, for, uh, for Omar Sharif riding out of the desert. Wow. Your dad made that? Yeah, he was one of the... Oh, I, my God. It was Panavision. It was just... It was pretty much a... All they did was um, not coat the... Not coat the lens. Oh, really? So it's yeah. just a bare lens, nothing on it? Yeah, it's just a it. bare lens, so that that light would just bounce around inside of it. Wow. I yeah. tell you, though, I mean, we used that shot in our seminar. Here's a good segue, because that... That's just an amazing, I mean... Oh, yeah. Well, you, you heard that that was his... They asked him what his biggest regret was um, in making uh, in, in his film career and in all the movies that he made. Uh, David Lean. Yes. Although David's what your biggest regret was, and he said the shot of, of Omar Sharif riding, going to the well is my biggest regret. He said because Billy Wilder had told me that if you want to surprise an audience, you need to bore them first. And that makes the surprise that much better, because then all of a sudden something's happening, and they've all been sort of like drinking their drink and eating their popcorn. And he goes, I shot a full magazine. I shot 11 minutes of Omar riding out of the desert. Really? So that was an 11-minute scene? He didn't use it. He only used like a yeah. couple, a couple yeah. of minutes of it. It was a long He goes, I should have used all 11 minutes. Wow. Because that was my regret. And I went, wow. So how far away did they start him to do that? That must have been over the horizon. Yeah, well, it was a long, if you remember the shot, yeah, it it's a long anyway, ways yeah, away. So. I think it was done, you know, the semaphore, the big, somebody up on it with a big flag saying, you know, ride I'm now. Sure, yeah. Back in the day when they used to What was a millimeter on that? I don't remember. I mean, I know where the lens is. I've seen it. Right. But I, I, have I don't no know. Idea. I have no idea. Because I don't think it's, fun. I don't think there's anything on the outside of it. Oh no, there's a there's a focus. There's a yeah. I, I mean all that, but usually you know how Panavision has all their right. their stuff. No, on no, it. that was back in the days before they did all that. And I mean, yeah. how yeah. genius was that back then to take that risk of something that you know what wasn't traditional, sharp focus long lens to take that risk of something that's deliberately going to distort. Yeah, deliberately going to yeah. bounce yeah. that light around and make but, it. I mean, that, that's pretty gut. That's that pretty little. gutsy. So. Well, they were very. I mean, because Dad and um, and George Kramer. When they made they made the first anamorphic zoom lenses for West Side Story, and they were that was crazy because they had never no one had ever anamorphosized the zoom lens, and they built it, and they were still putting they were still screwing it together when it was on the plane when they took it to New York, it shot its first shot is that helicopter shot in the opening, and they literally went to the lab and looked at the negative wet to make sure it worked for real. Wow. Even the opening sequence when they're looking down at yeah. New York. Wow. That was one of the first movies in my career. I'm mean, not my career. I was 14, but that really made me fall in love with movies. I mean, oh. that, that, I mean people don't like musicals so much. I thought it was amazing. The wackiest thing I've ever put a camera. Well, 
Okay, so uh, the wackiest thing I've ever done with a camera on a crane, on a, but because we were shooting the sequence with um, in a jungle, yeah, and we didn't they didn't want modern tracks, so it was a crane on a like a dolly that had non-tired wheels. And it was being pulled by two elephants because we couldn't pull it with an insert car. Wow. Malaysia? Yeah. Because it needed, when we looked back, yeah. we couldn't, we didn't want to see anything of, of modern technology. It was great. I mean, it was a, a lever head, you know, so, uh -huh. it would, so that it could move. Took it all that, yeah. But it was so much fun to have two elephants pulling a crane through the jungle that we were shooting off of. Wow. Do you have Maybe pictures Paul? of that? Um, I don't think I have them anymore. I mean, Paul, Paul was with you. He might have pictures. Of Paul might. Yeah. And in the King, Paul and I replaced the uh, a British crew because oh. they were having, like one day I got, Caleb called and said, uh, I'm sending you some stills of the, what's the issue? And I looked at it and I said, well, it's, uh, it's the filter behind the lens. It's oh, a, the the gel. Yeah. Yeah, it can warp. And it's a, it's, yeah. It's, or, or get out of this. And I said, that's the issue. And uh, he goes, well, he told me it's not. I said, well, no, that's the problem. And he says, what about this one? I said, well, it's, the gel's dirty because you can see it in the sky, but you can't see it when you tilt up. And he's like, all right, when can, how soon can you be on a plane? I'm like, well, I haven't called me. So they called him was one of the deals. He goes, how much, what did you make in your last movie? And I said, this is what I made. This we can't pay that. We're not even paying our camera operator that much. And I went, okay, well, do me a favor. I said, tell Caleb, thank you very much, but I won't be on the plane. And they called back maybe in like an hour. They said, uh, your ticket, you can get it and we'll pay it. Just don't tell, because it was a British op, it was, the whole crew was, um, none of, no one was from Hollywood. Oh. Yeah, that's the way India is. They're all from England. Or, yeah, so you said, don't don't tell anybody what you made. I said, I won't tell anyone what I made. So it ended up being, uh, I think, Sakamoto, myself, and uh, and Paul went. Yeah, they don't get paid the same that we do. No. Um, in India, the Indian people were getting, I was like, what is the rate? Yeah. Well, but the other side of that is they don't. They don't need as much as we do either to live. I mean, I mean, no. that's, but they, even the, that the Brits, fair, but they, they, don't get, they don't have the same rate we do. No, and 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 everything in directing and yeah. all of that, it's all different. You know, because on Treadstone, they, they were all British um, directors. Yeah. But there's, they were all, uh, one was American, but they were all DGA. So they were working off the DGA contract, and so we would talk to, we would get in conversations about, you know, what the difference was. And, and they they don't get the same residuals and any of the, all the rest of it. So it's a, it was a big deal. Too. Yeah, our grip crew was South African, and we they were having a bit of a problem because of the you know the Malays being dark skinned there was a lot of animosity. A lot of oh, the South sadly. Africans were being because you know, yeah. they were they're Afrikaners, so it was all I felt horrible because it was just like you can't treat people like that. Yeah. Yeah, it's a different world. I don't care who, who they are. Yeah. Do you think, uh, I mean, you must have seen quite a bit of that with all your travels. I mean, do you, I mean, L.A. and California and Hollywood is a pretty open and relaxed. Well, and yeah. I mean, is, was that the worst that you've seen? 
that was probably the worst I've seen crew treated uh, in that respect, where it was very demeaning, where they were talking down to them. Most of the other places I've been, um, crew's pretty, the crew's pretty okay. You know, because usually it's people within their own... Um, like class. Yeah, Koreans, Koreans with Koreans. And that was, that was one of the only times where it was like the lower crew was one culture and country and the upper crew was, you know, the, the key grip and the best boy were from somewhere else. India's the worst. Yeah, and I, I had I had a bit of a trope problem in India because we had um, three classes, and uh, I was told I couldn't take any carts with me, that I would have carts supplied, camera carts. Well, my carts were seven guys <laughs> carried everything. who carried everything around and decided to put stack everything in piles. So I had to say, no, you get these three, and this is how they had to lay out. And my equipment was everywhere. It was real pain. It really was. Nobody took into consideration how we worked and right. how they worked. Um, and I, I really tried to keep everybody together and treat everybody exactly the same. And I said, well, at lunch, we're all going to sit together. Nope. No, no, madam, we cannot. I said, what do you mean we can't? <laughs> well, they are in tent C, they're in B, and we're in A. So I said, OK, this is what we're going to do. We're going to eat outside. We're all going to sit together on a, by a table and we're going to eat. And then they came, the producer came over and goes, what are you doing? I said, I want us to all eat together. And he goes, well, you know, it's kind of fragile. I said, you can't tell us what to do outside of those tents. Right. Because well, I want it. You know, they can, but. But they got it. They do have issues. They right. But I wanted everyone to feel like yeah, they were I, pumping I me. Yeah, I do that a lot where I, if anytime I see something like that, then I'll go, no, that's, yeah. not, that's not the way we're going to do it. Yeah, Morocco. We same instead of carts, it was a, a cart pulled by a mule or a donkey. You know, we'd load you'd load out of the truck into the into the cart, and then the donkey would be led with all the equipment. It was hysterical. Were you you were in pretty remote areas then? No, we were in Marrakesh. Oh, right you were oh oh. I thought you were going to go like another you know mile or no, two. Oh, this was just to keep it to keep it around us in in the souk in Marrakesh. Wow. They said, no, because it'll, we don't want to push it all. I said, okay. Now I <laughs> the issue then is unloading and figuring out where we are. Yeah, we're all, which, 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 which donkey has A camera, which donkey has B camera. Yeah, how do you turn the donkey around? Uh, so, but wow. that was, that was fun with that sort of, but I've always, I always make, um, I hate when all, when they start separating us because of, yeah, they, uh, um, the Dutch tried to do that. Well, actually, it was so funny because of all the traveling around and everything, I thought oh, we were working with the Dutch and it was going to be very open and easy and they were really linear. Like, really? You know, you're, in, you're in van two, you're, but I want to speak to the guy in van, so I'm going to ride in that van. No, you're not. You're in van two. Wow. You're going to go in van two. And I would, same thing, I went, all right, so here's how it's going to happen. I'm going to get a cab, and he's going to get in the cab with me, and we're going to talk. <laughs> if, if we can't talk, why we're... And they were like, all right, well, that's okay. And I went, you guys are nuts. Yeah, that's weird. That's okay, but this is not... It's very yeah. militant. No, it that's was. It was, like, very linear. It was like... And then when I got to Germany, and we were working with a German crew, I thought they would be very linear. 
they were so not linear. Really? Yeah, they wow. drank the Kool-Aid faster than anybody that I've seen. <laughs> that's where you think it'd be just the opposite. Yeah, that's, I, that's why, what, that's what surprised thought. me was how it crazy the, Ger the Germans were like, you want to do that? And I said, yeah, I want to do that. Well, sure, we can do that. And I wanted to do a dolly shot right next to the Berlin Wall, and we don't, we never, when we travel like that, we don't carry dollies. We don't order them because we don't want to lay all the dolly track. We're running and gunning. And they went, give me, give me a couple of minutes. Okay. So we were, we were rehearsing, walking, and next thing you know, a wheelchair showed up. And I go, where'd you get this? He said, from the hospital down the road. We, <laughs> we just have to have it back soon. <laughs> and I went, I love these guys. Well, they yeah, knew, was, but they knew what to do. So. Yeah, it was filmmaking at its best. It's like you know, you're right. So much fun. That's filmmaking at its best. Because they were truly drank. They were, and my dolly grip was the was the first AD. You know, because it was like, no, I'll do it. I, I understand the timing that you want. Okay, perfect. I mean, did you notice? I don't know what what they were like, but in Hungary, there's really no electricians. They're all grip. Yeah, they're all. Yeah. They even do the slave. So yeah, no, they're all. They, yeah. It's uh, uh, my grip. There were no real grips. It was all like the grips. The key grip I had just did the dolly and and the and the crane and stuff like that. Everything else was all done by yeah. the electrical department, which is, you know, it was the same in um, in Buda in uh, Bulgaria. Oh really? Yeah, Bulgaria was definitely. What about Colombia? What was were there any issues down there? Oh no, the Colombians are fun. They're crazy, and my and they're very. It was really it was interesting because they're very very, like the gaffer and the key grip loved filmmaking, and so they were when I would say no, it's fine, we can shoot this. They're like, no no no, let's uh, let's uh, and I said no no no, let's just go like this. No come on. Let me, uh, and I said, no, no they let's wanted, just go like this. They and wanted they, to finesse it. Yeah, they wanted even more. And I'm like, dude, it's just, let's just roll. <laughs> and I go, damn, okay, we're going to roll, right? And they go, all right, all right. And towards the end, they were like, I said, I love the fact that you guys really want to do this, but this is going to be perfect. And they were like, okay, we understand. Well, they kind of probably wanted to show you what they know, too. Yes. Just, yeah. And and they were and they were great. They were we shot in a we got to a set. We had to do an interior of an air a jet an airliner, mm -hmm. and they don't. It was supposed to take place in a completely different. We were supposed to do it in Hungary, and they ran out of time, and and so we were. I said, okay, so here's what we're going to do. When we fly back to the United States, just give me a, a you know, Canon 5D, and I'll shoot. I'll shoot the sequence while he's while we're up in the front of the plane. We'll just use the interior lighting, and they went okay. But then they added a second actor, and they said, and "I said okay, now we're getting complicated." So they found us a set, and the set wasn't lit at all and stuff like that. But they they hit it hard, and it was beautiful by the time we were done. It was great. No air Hollywood there. No air Hollywood. <laughs> there is <was> now. <laughs> It was great. So the Colombians were wonderful. I mean, I had a great time. Yeah, that's definitely a place on my list. I'd like to go there. Too. And we did. We had to do a dolly shot, and we had shot in a real the real airport in Santa Marta, and we had to do a dolly shot in the airport at Santa Marta, and we ended up with a luggage cart with uh, apple boxes strapped to it. It was great. 
That's you just good. had to teach them that they had to, we had to start a little further back so they could set the wheels. Yeah. Because the first, first rehearsal, so I'll take, oh, no, <laughs> the no, wheels no. turn around. We got to set the wheels first. <laughs> oh, right. Set the wheels. <laughs> so it's not like a real dolly, guys. This is, this is a luggage car. What? Oh, right. Yeah. Yeah. And the tracking. Yeah. My first shot in Budapest was at the airport when we got off the plane, literally. And uh, I didn't have an assistant. And, I mean, I had a guy, but he wasn't really an assistant. But this girl came up to me, and her name was Ildiko, and she said that, she said, I'm going to be working. I said, now, what do, do I need you? She goes, well, I'm your interpreter. And I said, well, do I need you? And she goes, yeah, our pod, your assistant doesn't speak English. So, great. So, so I kind of made her my second. So I, but the first thing that happened was I was at the Pentaplex. I broke the eyepiece off. I had it against me, and the eyepiece came off. <laughs> first one. So, and I had another camera, fortunately. But, and then she, I remember I, it happened, and I had my hand. She, let, and she looked at me, and she goes, is that bad? <laughs> I said, actually, yes. So anyway, so I fixed it. But that was our first conversation. <laughs> she was great, though. She worked with me the whole time. So. But that, my other experience on that film was because I was having trouble with Arpod, because there was one day when he, I came to the camera, took at the end of the day, and all the magazines that I'd sent back were sitting on the tailgate with the tabs hanging out. He hadn't done any of them all day. So, so uh, Oh, no. He had asked he had asked Ildiko to ask me if he could go home early, and I go, no, he's got to do that. So like, so he was, like, really mad that he had to do it. You know, so what was he doing all day? So, so I got, I made him do it, so... So the drivers had picked up on the fact that they thought I was punishing him to do his job. So, so I'm waiting for my ride back to the hotel, and Ilda no. goes. So Ilda goes with me. She goes, "They're not coming." And I go, "What do you mean?" She goes, "They're going to punish you." And I go, "What are you talking about?" So, the, so I just start walking. She says, "Well, we'll get a cab." I said, "No, I'm walking." So, and I said, "It's that way, right?" So I start. I knew kind of where it was. So, and I took two batteries every night with me, so I carried them. And she followed me part of the way, but. The, so I walked into the production office with the batteries, and I and he stopped me. He goes, "I know, I know." He said, "We've already called your assistant, Billy Nielsen." Actually, he said, "We've already called him." So and he hated to fly. So 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 then the next morning at breakfast, I'm making this story too long. At breakfast, we're sitting at breakfast, and Costa Gavras was the director, and we all know him. And yeah, he was complaining that his family wasn't there. And, and he said, well, what do you mean you can't afford to bring my family here? And, then, and, and he said, and I heard him, he goes, you can afford to bring Bill, Bill, Steve's assistant here. Why can't I have my camera? And they go, all right, well, forget it. We won't bring Bill. <laughs> I'm like, oh, no. no. <laughs> so I'm like, oh, my God, no. So I'm listening to all this, and everybody's watching. It's like, so, so I found out later that Billy said literally he had left the house. He was on the way to the airport when they called him and told him not to come. It was that weird. So, wow. It, I mean, it was nightmare. So, so anyway, I... I just had him load and had her work with me. It was terrible. So anyway, that's my Budapest story. So. Oh, I was in. Uh, we were shooting in Hawaii. I was, uh, and Tiny was our our camera. We were shooting on Maui, and Tiny was our camera truck driver. And Tiny's about a big Hawaiian. Yeah, three hundred pound moke. Yeah, you and don't mess with the teamsters, guys, guys, man. Yeah, and more. he comes up one day and he goes, "Hey, Jamie, you're a loader." He's slow, man. I said, what? He's slow. He's keeping us late at night, man. I said, really? I said, well, I'll give him a talk to you. He says, no, we talked to him. Man, he's just slow. It's, you know, this has been like four days. I said, okay, what do you suggest? 
He goes, I'm a loader. I said, you bastard. He's faster than him, man. <laughs> I said, all right. I said, uh, I don't want to fire him. He says, no, 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 no. We don't fire him. We just made it. He just help out your assistant. I take care of the loading. I said, all right. You're a loader, Tiny. Good luck, dude. Yeah. And it was great because from that point on, the Teamsters were so happy with us. You know, my truck was first and everything was great. And it was all, and Tiny was, Tiny was our Teamster and our loader. You know, I gave him some of my per diem to, and he was like, and it was so much fun. He barely fit in that dark room. <laughs> we, we did learn but, early on that. Treating the Teamsters in Hawaii nice is a good thing. Oh, my gosh, yes. <laughs> We did learn that. It's the only thing, because they're all connected. They all yeah. know each other. They're all f learning. To, when I, My first movie was Groundhog Day, and it's back when pagers were in. So uh, I happened to have a, a, a pocket full of AA batteries. And they're like, hey, toots. Yeah, what you need? You got any uh, batteries for my pager? So I just, that's, it was like M&M's. And I was working with Peter Kuttner. Suddenly, camera truck is in a better place. Suddenly, <laughs> things are moving, and I'm going up to, my father was a Teamster. Hey, my dad's a Teamster. And Peter was like, I've never had a loader that could get stuff done and do things. And I was like, he's, what are you doing? I go, I don't know, Peter, just, you know. <laughs> I wouldn't tell him. Well, be nice for one thing. Yeah, I was. It was yeah. Just be nice to everybody. You'll get a lot more, right? What was the movie that got you interested, that got, that got the bug? You're like, I want to do this, I have to do this, or? Hmm. I wouldn't say it was any particularly one show that made me go, I have to do this. It was... It was the, just the experience in total of making movies and making television was the whole... everything combined. I have... Um, I tell p young people that the only way this, the only way your career will work is if you give up everything for this. It's not, this is not a job, this is a life. It is, it is completely consuming. It has to be. You have to love it. You have to want to live it. You have to need to, need to do it. Because the rest of your life is going to completely fall apart. <laughs> completely. Yes. Your social life is going to be Zero, you know, it's gonna is not. No one's gonna put up with the fact that you are not going to be around. You're going to miss holidays. You're going to miss birthdays. You can't make that commitment to be there on Friday night to dinner because there's a good possibility I'll be working all night Friday night and Saturday morning. My daughters will tell you the amount of they've probably had breakfast more with me eating dinner and them having breakfast on Saturdays than any other time. You know, um, and you're going to travel, and you're going to be coddled and taken care of, but it's just a spectacular way to work. You're creating something. You're, you're. It's just, and it's, it's a, a tribe that does it, that, that you move with, and they're your people, and they all ex are all. You're all experiencing it together, and it only works that way. I've been around. You know, I've worked around enough and traveled enough where you run into, like, the grips who are grips because it pays more than being a gas station attendant. Well, his career is not going to go that far. 
because it has when you meet the ones who like this is what they do they have that drive to them this is they can't do anything else that's what we do and to be around the same people with the same drive that's what it's all about I mean I truly love it there's nothing else I there's that's also there's really nothing else I can do we don't have <laughs> you know we don't go that's long in our career and have transferable skills there is no other transferable skill, especially as a focus puller. Is there another transferable skill as a focus puller? Is there another transferable skill as a second assistant? Is a boom man? You know, it's that we don't. We don't have transferable skills. Well, I mean, even, even today, people will say, you know, when I talk about being a focus puller, they say, they'll be like, you mean you're doing focus and you're not looking through the camera? And even yeah. now, they don't get that. Yeah. Point. I mean, I'm a. You know, I'm a little disappointed. You know, the focus pulling has changed now. And they all have their little monitors and their remote focus. And you go, dude, that actor is going to move before you realize it. And it's going to go soft if you're standing next to the camera. And you look at the actor. You can still use your remote focus, but at least... You're going to be late. At least look at the actor. Yeah. Get that, you know, the, the things that we used to have where you... You know that all the actors have tells when they're going to move and when they're going to do their stuff. and So you get that relationship with them. Absolutely. That the tells so, are absolutely. I mean, that is so dead on. And that's the part yeah. that, you know, when you go to the other room, it's like, you know, you can use your monitor, but, but maybe you want to be here next to the yeah. I want to hear what the, the operator is telling me. Or if I'm operating, absolutely. I want to be able to say, yeah. I'm going to go left and I want yeah. that guy in the back row. Yeah, yeah, and, and get right back right now. Right, right, right. No, I, and, you know, I was lucky enough. I, we were one of the, I was one of the first ones with Caleb to, to, have, a, to have a remote focus. Um, so, uh, and we called it Elvis, uh, Electronic Lens Varying Information System, <laughs> which is what we called it because so, we put it on the case as, the, as Elvis. And so when we got our first one, and I started using it, and I realized I still would not walk away. I still would keep it right there. And you would... And because the operators had to get used to it, where they would be looking, you know, it was reflex viewing. They'd want to check focus, so they would reach down. So we would have to keep the remote focus, the knob on the, on my front box, so that they could grab it and all that stuff. And then I, I went off to the, you know, I would go off to the side, and I thought that was freeing. Instead of having to be right next to the lens, I could come over and look at this relationship, and I did that. And then. Um, uh, and then one day we were I was working with Jody Foster on uh, um, uh, King and I on Anna and the King and Jody had to open up a door and I was standing next to Jody on the other side of the door you know off just off to the conceit and Jody goes what are you doing here and I said well you're going to open that door and if I'm on that side of the door next to the camera I will not know where you are and we were shooting a pretty tight shot. I said, so here, if I stand here, I can tell where you are. You have marks and everything. Yeah, and she goes, what? I said, yeah. But by the time that door opens, it's going to be. She goes, show me. And I showed her. That was the first remote focus she had ever seen. And we went through it, and I walked over to the camera and walked her back. She goes, oh, my God, I love that. And so from that point on, Jody would always, as the movie progressed, Jody would go, where's Jamie? <laughs> and I said, I'm over here, Jody. She's pretty savvy about filmmaking, though. Is, oh, is she's, she not? she's one of the most yeah. brilliant people yeah, I've ever. She seems to be. Yeah. yeah. You, you always, you, we would go have dinner. We'd all be at dinner together, and you'd go home from dinner, and you'd go, I went to college, too. 
I did not get the same education you got, young lady. <laughs> you are much smarter than I am. So, I, think, I mean, I never worked with her, but I like her. Just, no, she's she brilliant. Just she's, so, she's so much, and she's really a nice lady. Yeah, seems like it. She's so much fun. As I, that's the cool part of the business is you work with good actors and nice actors, but then you get to meet brilliant people. Yeah. And they're talented and good looking and they can sing and they can do this and do that and you're just yeah, like son of a bitch <laughs> yeah. man why are you like that you can't be so nice yeah but <laughs> i don't think i don't know if you find that in other or other no. businesses i mean we're not, no, we're so lucky we are so lucky no i always tell i was lucky enough you know i i worked with paul newman when we were doing message in a bottle and paul was you know an idol. Here's yeah. a man who was amazing. And he could do, we did this slow push-in on Paul. He had had a conversation with Kevin. Kevin had walked away. And we did the slow push-in on Paul. And next day in dailies, we're watching dailies. And take four, I think it was. One tear comes down Paul's cheek. And the lights come up. It's the last shot we were watching at dailies. The lights come up. And I go, okay. I was the closest to him. When did he decide to cry? There was no headphones. There was no quiet on the set. He's getting in a mood. Just one take. One tear. Just down as it. And I went, that's watching a master actor act. Absolutely. And the nicest man you'd ever want. He taught. He, my daughters came up to visit, and he talked to them one day, and he said, you know, what are you guys doing? What are you what have you? And they go, we want to learn to fish. And he, on a Sunday, he took them to a store. His house was right on the river in Maine. Took them to the fishing store, bought them equipment, took them to his back dock, and taught them how to fish. And they will never, yeah, there's ever... A, yeah, there's a story. <laughs> you know, they will never, ever not remember that moment. And it was very funny, because on the next morning, they brought their fish to the set, and it was Tony Karam from Tony's Catering. Oh, yeah. And... He, they gave Tony the fish, and then Tony immediately threw it in the trash and went and bought better fish <laughs> so that they could have, they could eat lunch with really good fish. So they thought they were eating their fish. Yeah, their fish. Oh, how nice. Yeah, it was great. So now if you guys are hearing that, you yeah, know. So, well, they, but, uh, but Paul was just, I mean, you just couldn't, and one of those guys, too, where you would, the jokes, you know, he would be telling you that in the middle of a joke and go, and they would go, Paul, and he'd just, you know, walk away from the camera do his scene, and then come back and tell you the punchline. And I said, how do you, you're so, such a great guy. Yeah, that's nice. And he was, we, we had such a good time with him. And I'll, I'll never ever, you know, to actually have worked with a, an actor of that level was just unbelievable. We're so lucky, aren't we? I oh, mean, yeah. I, I keep, you know, people say, oh, what about this? And I'm like, I pinch myself because I'm thinking, Nobody else has these stories but those of us who no. work so many of them at, at the level we did. But yes. there's so many of them that are so nice like that. Yeah. People say, well, aren't they dicks? I said, no, I've only met, worked with one actor I ever thought that. But, uh, yeah, there's some. The, there's some. But. It was the in-between ones. It's like the ones that were at, at the level of being, you know, big actor, they were always nice. Yeah. It was yeah. the ones that were sort of in-between that we always went, yeah, okay, you're a bit of a... And then <laughs> the ones that were just starting out were also nice. Yeah. So it was like the ones that just weren't quite, 
making it, you just went, oh. Yeah. We yeah. Were, but you're right. The ones at the top. Oh, I've always had. Pinch yourself yeah. to just be in the same room. No, yeah. it's, it's when we were doing the, and I had also heard the horrible stories when we, I got to do Master and Commander with Russell, with Crow. Um, I had always had heard those stories of how difficult Russell was. But luckily I was camera operator and actors of that level like their camera operators. Got to know, you know, where are you going to be? And we would have that open conversation of Russell's like, where are you going to be? And I said, I'll be over here. And he goes, I'll throw you a look. And, you know, we had that open communication. Fun guy to be around. Very nice. Really good. And very talented. And I loved him. And I was like, okay, I got, you got to get rid of all those other stories because that's not the man that I yeah. It's not the man that I'm working it with. It starts with the top, and it goes down. Yeah. It starts with how they're treated, how you treat them, the professionalism. It's it's about all of that. Yeah, it was, you know, Peter Weir and, and Russell Boyd as well, and so the nicest people you'd ever want to work with. I would, you know. We'd heard about when we worked with Sharon Stone, that we were told, oh, you know, she's a bit, you know, she's going to be terrible. She, I mean, my experience now, she couldn't have been nicer. Like, yeah, I, I did that. We we had that with, uh, uh, I did uh, a thing called Digstown Ringers with James Woods and, and uh, Lou Gossett Jr. And everyone was having a very difficult time with Jim, with Woods, so eyeline issues and stuff like that. And we were doing a scene inside of a boxing arena, and I was going to end up being in... Jimmy's eyeline. I was actually going to have to stand between Jimmy and Lou Gossett Jr. and he was doing the eyeline with Lou. And I went up to the director, who was Michael Ritchie, who's also no longer with us, and I said, Michael, I'm going to end up in these eyelines and I, we know what Jimmy's do doing. Um, can you help me out with this? <laughs> and Ritchie's like, no, you're not. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm like, oh, oh my God. So I go, okay. So I finally, I went, you know what? I'm just going to face this head on. So I went, to, I went to Jimmy's trailer, and I knock on the door, come in, and I said, Mr. Woods, I'm going to be, there's no way I can get around this, I'm going to be in your eye line. The way that the shot's set up and all of this, the camera's going to be here, Lou's going to be here, I'm going to have to be in between you and Lou. I'm really sorry about it, but that's just how this technically it's going to get set up. And he looked at me and he goes, you're the first one that's ever done that. You're the first one that's actually talked to me about it. He goes, and it's not going to be a problem. Professionalism. Yeah, we're fine. He goes, I really appreciate it. And I said, okay, thank you, sir. And from that point on in the movie, we were like, you know, whenever I would like Jimmy, and he goes, yeah, 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 it's fine. So as long as, as long as you treated him well. well and then eventually Michael Ritchie, would, there was something that he wanted Jim to do, and he goes, I know this is going to be a problem. He goes, Jamie? And I go, not a chance, dude. <laughs> Well, but he, you, but he, he help me when out. you came in there, he understood that that you knew, we knew what he was doing and respected what he was yes. doing. You're just not one of the guys on the crew, but you knew what he was doing, and, yes. he, and he appreciated that. So yeah. I did that with I had that happened with Alyssa Milano once, where I was we were doing a shot where the, the two people had dialogue like, and they were like this, and and there was no split, and and it was so quick, and 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 I would started it talked to the director and the DP about it, and she picked up on her right away, and she's, well, no, 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 she's, 
you know, see, you know, and she just got it, put herself. She in knew the where to be right. right away before we even got in. She put herself in the place where it worked, and it was great. Yeah. So. She didn't want to make it difficult. She was like, "How do we work this out? How yeah, do we make no, it that's, better?" That's, that's she knew my problem. That's right? great. That's yeah. when you're working with those people who understand. Yeah, yeah that's a pro. You know, yes. they, it, that's the way I always I tell people, young people as well. It's like if you communicate and you're the professional along with them and you show professional courtesy, it's going to make it a lot better. Yes. And that's why we're there. That's oh, exactly. why we're all there to accomplish the same thing. And it's one of the things is you you can't be intimidated because they're just they put on their pants just the same as you. They do the same things as you do, and they're there to. If it doesn't work from our end, then are there all their hard work's not going to make it to the screen either. Right. Do you want to do six takes, or do you want to do two or three that work, and that we can work this yeah, out? Yeah, we can right? work this out, and that they understand. Yeah. I mean, this is a lot about what we talk about in the seminar, like, right down to set etiquette. You know, like and just, you know, respecting like the eyeline. You know, you told right. the, you told the story. That's. The eyeline is probably one of the biggest etiquette things that people have problems with, like somebody back there on the phone or something. Well, right. and it's I mean, out the window. I mean, an actor doesn't you know, want to have to. Now. He doesn't want to have to tell anybody to get out of the shot. So no. Know yeah, it. I remember putting my head down or, or crouching somewhere after I did this later, and now everyone's walking around. They're on their phone. They're looking. It's like that's so distracting. No, it's so distracting. Yeah. You know, I. I I wouldn't like it myself. Uh, I did like what you said, you know, when we were talking about pulling focus, because I learned from helping Steve, you know, th that little bit of where do they sit in their shoes? Are they sitting back? Are yes. they a person who sits on the, the ball of their shoe? Are they, are they tippy-toe? Do they go forward? And the first day or two with an actor, I'd say, he's sitting in his shoes, and he's going to rock before he gets to yes. you. Communication. I wanted him to do it once, not three times. Yeah, exactly. And then when I became a focus puller, and even operators. But you watch TV now, and you can see that little bit of a buzz, oh, right? Well, crazy. even on the big screen. Yeah. Oh. People don't care anymore. So. No. That rock into it, and it's like, you missed it. Okay, but it's there. Yeah, no. But you would have gotten yelled at. Or fired. I got yelled at. Well, yes. I mean, or fired. Or back, fired. Right. I mean, back I then it was fired. Yeah, yeah. back then it was fired. I mean, I no. remember doing a movie where I had one soft shot like you know it was like a push in on it and it was dark there was no light in it, and it buzzed like one part of the scene and uh that would i mean nobody ever got over it for the rest i mean i i was lucky to still be there but oh, nobody, no. nobody got over in the whole movie it's like they they kept wondering when they could do it again and get they never did but it was like it was like one shot it was like and they never got over it there was there was there was also a big change when they moved from um there was that period of time when they moved over to Kim's and to Steenbeck's uh, tables, to oh, yeah. edit tables, because you can't tell focus on an edit table. And all of a sudden, takes where you, you know, you would say, don't use that period part. Oh, no, we definitely won't. Well, I always use it. Yeah. And then that's, there was that, then all of a sudden you started noticing that more and more movies started having soft work on it. And you just went... Never gonna trust you guys. Yeah. yeah I mean, you, you you hope to depend on even the script supervisor for that sometimes. To make yeah, it, but they don't. Once it gets it to an editor's yeah. editor's hands, then yeah. it's all. He used to looks, looks fine to me. He used to tell me, say, you know, go back there. You know, when we'd change a Maggie, goes tell him that seven is no good or whatever. So I'd go back and talk to the script supervisor, and she's like, well, he wants that number, and I was like, yeah, you know, Steve really doesn't feel like it was, and it was. That's all you could do. Yeah. yeah. You just make a note. Yeah. yeah. 
But I will say, every time that he thought he buzzed something, he, he was right. I mean, and you usually know. I mean, yeah. You know, especially if you're right here where you're supposed to be. So. Yeah. yeah. You just knew. And then long lens stuff. I mean, he was so good at it. I mean. I had some trouble with a couple shots with Caleb up in Portland. And, and uh, actually about as many as the, as the other, as the first it did. But, but when I would have one, I'd really get here about it. So I, <laughs> I mean, and it wasn't much. I mean, there was one nighttime shot. On the yard or seventy-five millimeter, and, and Caleb was nice. He said, "You know, just so you know, we, you know, it's, we like you here. We want to just be aware of it." So, I mean, he had his moments, but like I say, I liked working with Caleb. And I worked on that. I got to work with him as an operator too, which was nice. And, That's great. Yeah, and that was a, kind of a fun thing. Yeah. And he gave me a little shit one day, but he, you know, I, I knew it was coming, and but he, but I loved working with him both ways. So, yeah, he made me because I really wanted to be an operator, and he made me, uh, he made me go to television. He said, you go to TV for a couple of years, and then you can come back and That's cool. be an operator. You can you know, hone your skills. And it is different. I mean, television was great for honing, skill, for honing those skills because you had to do it, you know, day in and day out. And you, uh, you got to work, you know, different directors all the time. And so it really, really helped. It was fun. And that was always one of the things that there was always a, um, when we were g going through it, there was always that separation between TV and feature people. Yeah. And they said, and once you got to television, you went, nah, I don't know. So they do just as hard of work, and the hours are, they, and you know, and they have a limited, much more limited amount of time. You know, to do forty something pages in eight days, yeah. instead of you know, months and months to do it. So you you. I went, well, I'll take these people anyway. And those, I ended up, uh, I called them my secret weapon. When you needed like that third camera or fourth camera guy, fourth camera focus puller, I'd go to the television list. My guys from TV, yeah, here, there you go. Because they were as good as the feature guys, but. And quicker. Yeah, but the feature guys were always, you know, you didn't want them stealing your, stealing your rest of your <laughs> I loved it. Yeah, we did one uh, TV show, or at least Steve and I did one TV show, and, and I had had we enough of it. We did the series. Yeah, we did. And we were just like, I don't know how he felt about it, but uh, I didn't mind it, but I just was like, please, dear God, have a feature call. <laughs> I was just used to that. Right. Now, it's, changed, going to it's the changed a lot now because we don't, we don't, no one does the, you know, because the big, the big TV run back then was 22 episodes. Yes. You know, and that was a big commitment. Now it's 10 or 13, and so you can deal with that. We used to always say, you know, at the end, at the end, of, a, at the end of the long series, that I didn't want to see any of my crew for, until we had to come back. Yeah. I don't want to see any of you. If we see each other on the street, you have no idea who I am. <laughs> I didn't mind doing t episodic as an operator when I did the OC with you. No, but, episodic. I mean, that was because you could come and go, but that was a lot. As an assistant, it was just a nightmare. Oh, no, it's yeah. a grind. Yeah, it's a grind. Of, but again, I think it's a great way to hone your skills. Oh, yeah. definitely. So, yeah. I mean, I love handheld. Don't get me wrong. But my hand, the handheld that I like is, is that it's just you're here. No shaky cam, and 
you know, it induces a little bit of tension because the camera's there, but you don't want it to feel yeah. like it's there. You don't want to make people think there's a camera there. No. But but the other side of that is you, it, you know how to compose a shot. Well, that's... You know, like some of these guys... Yeah. Like, oh, no, that's the big... Yeah. And I told you, that was that moment where when I first first started operating where you had to, you know, with a gearhead, and you got to go, okay, this go, this is this is making it go right, this is left, this is up, this is down. And doing that before every shot and then that one shot where all of a sudden the camera just started moving and then it was cut and I went whoa these hands just actually moved that camera and then it then it became that's when I got to the point now where you can start looking around the frame and figuring out where the art was and making sure that that light is in their corner and all of that and I've made that it's really funny having now worked around the world and you work with European operators, and so they, they all are fluid head people. Yeah. And I make I make them. I order a gearhead, and I make them work on the gearhead. And they're like, no, I gearhead, no, it's, you've got it. And I said, no, you can't be afraid of it. It's a piece of equipment, and it works really well. And you can do things that you can, you know, you can actually hold the frame yes. and look around and figure out where stuff's happening and make corrections where on a fluid head, more than likely, if you start looking up in that corner, that fluid, that camera's going to go gonna that drift, way. Yeah. At least it's going to drift. Yeah, <laughs> it's going to, you know, there's, there's problems with that. And so, so yeah. on Treadstone, the last thing, I made my eight-camera operator also, you know, I'd pull out the gearhead. And then he, we, we did some crane shots, and they would order the fluid head that's like a, for the crane. Oh, you mean the joystick thing? Yeah, well, yeah. It's a, actually, it's a fluid head. That, oh, is it? Yeah, that mimics, and then the crane, the crane, the remote head mimics no, the I've fluid never seen head. No, I've never seen that either. Yeah, they do it, and I've, I said, no. No. And he goes, what? I said, no. I said, I want you on a, on a geared head, um, regular wheels. He goes, I've never done that. And I said, well, you're going to. Now's the time. And he's, at least you're with me. And I'm not going to, you know. I was just going to say, you picked the right person. Yeah, I said, yeah. I'll, and if you, if we run into time, and then the director begins to panic, then I'll step in and I'll do it. I said because I can, I that was one of my things that I could definitely do. And you'll learn to love it. And well, that's what yeah. it did. After a little while, he was like, "This is so great." Mm -hmm. Like, of course it is. I said because you, it, you are allowed to do things that you can't do, and the. And to be able to, and I showed him all the things of like, if there's an end spot, then disengage the gearing, put your hands where they're comfortable, re-engage the gearing, and then start somewhere else. And then you'll go, boom, and that's where the camera's going to stop. And he goes, oh, wow. And I said, yeah, with fast moves and things like that. I said, that's the secrets of it. I said, it's also, and then I would tell the focus person, I said, it's also the secret of focus pulling on a camera. I said, you find that end mark where you know that actor's going to be, and that's where you set your hand, and then you allow it to go to the uncomfortable, and it's naturally going to progress to the comfort zone. Anyway, really? Yeah, I mean, I said, at, least yeah. in, at least in the territory of it. So. <laughs> I said, yeah, that's, that's, how it, that's how it works. It's a little, little things like that. Yeah, I've had two experiences on, I mean, af after I retired, actually, where I, date, I can still date play and stuff, so, where I went out and... Um, one of them where I was the third camera and they wanted to do a camera remote shot outside. And the two operators on the show wouldn't do it because it was 
wheels. And I said, well, I can't do that. And, and the DP, he knew me, said, they were, I, said, I said, I'd be happy to. I, <laughs> and I would love to do it. Yeah. But they flat refused to do it. It's like, wow. what would they have done? Yeah, and without it, would. Uh. Can you imagine saying no? They no. Said no. They said no. Well, they're, like you said, they're tools. They're very, they're to yeah. definitely tools. They have their uses. There's a I, reason there's a fluid head. There's a reason why there's gear, right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and it's all, it all, each shot requires what it requires. But I mean, they might ask, I mean, I would, you might ask yourself why the wheels were invented. You know, I mean, back in the day, why did somebody decide to have this those kind big of fluid cameras? Fluidity? Yeah, those why, I mean, the weight was one thing, but, but the fluidity, there was a reason for that. And it's like, yeah. it's not, it's not something that we're going to put back in the closet. It still works. Like, oh, that's a, definitely. Yeah. Well, it's like the first. Um, so I was lucky enough when uh, um, actually. So I had to clean out a. I had to clean out a warehouse for Panavision when it first started, and I ran all into all this old gear. I ran into like George World's World Head Number Two. Wow. Oh my God! This World Head Number Two. <laughs> And the color temperature meter from um, The Wizard of Oz. What? Oh, my God. Yeah, it was what, amazing. What happened to that? Uh, ended up, I think Panavision still has it oh. somewhere. Someone has it. In a, hopefully in a glass case. Yeah, it was beautiful. Yeah, it was just look. crazy. I, it said Wizard of Oz. You know, oh, when I opened it up. Holy, it's a color temperature meter. They needed um, them then. But uh, then so, yeah. yeah. But I was so I've I've always had a, a a love for crazy equipment, and I was in. There used to be this little store, little storefront down in Hollywood that had old old camera equipment and stuff, and they had a uh, an a, a old stage crane, and it was an old act. Uh, uh, gun from World War Two. That's what the for making. Then they that's they used it for following, uh, you know, for shooting the uh, ACAC yeah. for the the ground to air. Wow. That's how you did it. Yeah. You know, it's so the funny that you mentioned they had them in ships too, didn't yeah, they? That's yeah. where they were. Yeah. That's so funny that you should mention that because when I was in the Marines, I tr I went to Vietnam on a ship, and they make the Marines on the ship the guys that man the guns and stuff. And we had training out in the middle of the ocean. They'd fly over with those guns. And now that you say it, I remember they were big wheels. <laughs> yeah, no, they were the wheels. I never the, gave it a thought. They were the right same now. wheels. They, they just, were big I wheels. I went, oh, so that's where all that, that's where they started to do it. Well, and the dollies were things they lifted bombs up. Yeah. yeah. All that technology. It's a makeshift. Came from the war. It's like, yeah, uh, no, industry. All, yeah, all came, all came from other places. Yeah, Barney, what is it? It's a, it's a horse blanket. <laughs> Yeah. So I was, and then, um, so last year I, uh, uh, a film school in Sweden on uh, the island of Gotland, uh, wanted a, a Hollywood director to come in and direct. Uh, they had sold a small project to Swedish television and they, they wanted, they were looking for somebody to come in and, and direct the, the first two episodes just to set the, and so I said, sure, I'll go. And they didn't, it wasn't, didn't pay my, any money at all. I said, you just fly, fly me over there. And so they flew me over. And it ends up that where the film school is, is at the very end of the island. And then there's another little island beyond it. And that's 
Bergman's uh, island. And the film school has a warehouse of all of Bergman's old oh, equipment. Oh, wow. And I walked in, and it was like, oh, I walked into this warehouse and just went, whoa. <laughs> and so there was this light sitting there, and they all go, we have no idea what that is. And I go, what is it? It's a brood arc. They go, what? I said, that's a brood arc. They go, well, what's that? And I said, well, it has two electrodes that just about touch, and it arcs, and it creates this gorgeous orange light. Yeah. And they go, Lot of You're the first one that actually knew. What that really, was. that's yeah. pretty funny. That, that's weird that somebody didn't know. Wow. No, I don't think anything anybody had wandered back there through stuff. I found an old Nike stage crane and wow. all this other stuff. But the, and these Fresnels, these beautiful old lamps that were these gorgeous Fresnels. But it was so much fun, and it was an interesting little film school because they they don't teach. They teach a little bit of theory, but it's practical. They're putting out. Grips and electricians and camera people. And, well, that's what the schools don't do. No. And camera that's, operators no. and that's and so when I went to, when I was directing, it was like, when the 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 man who ran the program he goes, um, I looked at your IMDb and I said, yeah. He goes, can you help them? And I said, sure, be happy to. So we did stuff. Okay. Like I I had them. Uh, they they had. We were doing a shot outside, and it was winter, and it was cold, and it was a big dolly track, and it was in. And I said, I want the dolly to start here, because first they said, Are we going to take the dolly outside? I said, Of course we're going to take the dolly outside. <laughs> so the shot starts here, and I want it to end up over there. And he goes, That's through snow. And I go, Yeah, it's through snow. And he goes. I've never set dolly track in the snow. I said, we're going to today. That's Sweden. That's crazy. You I know. That, that's a, that, no, they would never leave the stage. When they oh, got, really? Everything was on stage. Yeah. Wow. So I, we made them, and I went, okay, let's do it. And they were so happy. They could not have been happier. He, he bragged for a whole week of how he had, anyone that would listen to him, how the dolly group, how he had, they had set dolly track out in the snow. You know, and also teaching the focus puller a little bit of you know how to pull focus, because they didn't use, um, they didn't have the money for like remote focuses, yeah. so they had to manually do focus. Good, they were and, learning. Yeah. yeah, and to, I said, you know, all the things that you made them do. And yeah. So it was great. And we'll they brought it. they brought in a DP, from that was Swedish, and uh, um, he had to leave. We had like another two days of shooting left, and I said, I'll. He goes, they go, our other DP is not going to be here for a couple of days. I said, I'll DP in at the same time. And then the electricians, I was a little kinder with the electricians, you know, explaining a little bit more uh -huh. what they had to do. We moved faster than we did before. And no was, intimidation. Yeah, it was so much fun. Yeah. Boy, see, I just dream for to do, I mean, that's why we made the seminar for other countries and I mean, I just can't wait to get back to Kenya and Vietnam with film students and do that. That's, that's my dream. To do that. And these kids well, you want should, it. Yeah. Okay. I'll, I'll, you should, you, should, you would love this film school. Oh, cool. It's, a, it's, it's wonderful. It, how long ago was that? So, uh, this was uh, last year, oh, so it's new, January. Re recently. Yeah. Oh, so well, they'd love our seminar, probably. So. Yeah. yeah. No, they're great. Yeah. And they were wonderful, wonderful people. Oh, send me their thing. I'll I will. take it over there. Um, one thing that we saw, we've noticed that when we work with uh, younger people, 
uh, is that they don't tape out the lens. It's like prepping. Prepping. Really? Yeah. Some of them. It's wow. like, did you measure, you know, is it coming up at six? Yeah. No, did you, you know, I want to know if it's a line off. Because yeah. I'll redo everything. Well, they don't you know? do it because they're, they're, they think that focus pulling is the monitor. Yeah. I just did a, I did a TV pilot like a year ago right now. Somebody asked me to do a pilot in Chicago. And it was about hockey, and it was fun, and uh, low budget, but it, was, it turned out to be a nice film, and I got this girl to work with me, and uh, we were prepping, I was prepping with her, and, and we had some nice prime lenses, and, and I saw her just kind of looking at it, and I said, are you going to put them out and run a tape measure and stuff? She had no idea what I was talking about, no idea. So, so I figured, okay, we'll see what happens. But, <clears throat> but she, had, she didn't even know what that meant, and she said, oh, these lenses are fine, like, Wow, oh, my God. Know, but she had no, she didn't even know what that meant. And she'd just come out of film school. She had no idea. Wow. Which shocked me. So. I, weeks. Yeah. Weeks. Yeah. Yes. So, I, I mean, I didn't. Testing push lenses and. Yeah, a week. Yeah. I, we had, I had a set, Caleb, with Caleb. I had a set of lenses that um, over three movies, we had finally. Had wrote them down? Yeah, had them all. Yeah. Not, even, not even wrote them down. Kept them in the back room. Yeah. And then one day uh, I went in to start prepping and I was missing my 75 anamorphic. And I went and it, it ended up that uh, Bob Gregor Tavener had him with Bob Richardson. Mm -hmm. had, taken him. had taken my 75. And I was like, where's my 75? <laughs> and then so got on the phone with Gregor, got on the phone with Bob, because, you know, I know Bob. And I'm like, there you go, nope. Not coming back. Wow. So then I made. Then I made. You know, luckily for me, I understand the Panavision way of manufacturing, and I said, okay. I know that this was number, and I think it was number thirteen. I said, so I, tell me, find me, fourteen. You know, I want fourteen through twelve through twenty-four, because Panavision made everything in groups of twelve. Oh, they did. Yeah. All the lenses were manufactured in 12s. So eventually I found, <coughs> I made them locate 14 through 24 all over the world. And then started having them shipped in. And then I found, I think it was 19, 18 or 19. She had to be shipped in from uh, London. And she came in and then it was better. Were these primos or? No, these were. You well, said that. Did you say anamorphic? Yeah, these were E series. I think. Oh, oh, E series. Yeah, you had a pair of those. Yeah. Yeah, yeah I think they were my they were my E series. I mean, the the uh, Primos were the first ones where you really didn't have to do a lot of testing because the colors, right? Right. The, 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 and those were all those were all lights, the Leica glass. Yes. So they had the Leica. But prior to that, I noticed when I was uh, I was uh, working at Panavision, a lot of lens tests. Okay, these are cooler. These are warmer. Right. Right. So the first, those first sets of the first sets of lenses from Panavision were all. Um, there was a stills place in Westwood. Bel Air Camera, mm -hmm. and they were getting the primes from Bel Air Camera. Really. So it was whatever they were about to manufacture. They were about to do fifties, make fifties. Then they would say they would do research and find out that this, like Pentax, the Pentax 50 was the best 50, or the Nikon 50 or the Canon 50 were the best ones. 
and then they would order a lot of them. They would test them all, and then they would unhouse them and um, rehouse them in Panavision in Pan housing. I was curious about the transition from the DP to the so, um, How does that happen? So. It was, for me, it was actually a very interesting tra uh, transition. We were, I was doing covert affairs. I'd been on it for a couple of years. And uh, they came up to me and said, uh, NBC is not going to pay anymore. So we have to find a way, if you want to do the show, we, and we'd like you to do it, to find a way to pay you more. So have you ever considered directing? And I went, No. And, but as a DP, you know, I've dragged first-time directors through, I've dragged editors through and all that. So they convinced me, they said, you know, we'd like you to, we can pay you more to do that. I said, all right, I'll try it. We'll, we'll try it. So luckily it was Piper, it was Piper Perbo and um, the other crew, uh, the other actors that I've been with for a while. And they said, we'll find you an episode that is written sort of action-oriented, because that's you know, instead of any deep acting, and I said, okay, great. So they, uh, they found me an episode that was written pretty action-y, and um, our producing director was a gentleman named Stephen Kay, and he, you know, helped me through the process, and it was great. It was, you know, it was pretty easy. I'm, um, I was very quick as a director, only because you know, there wasn't a lot of making up my mind of how I was going to shoot a sequence. I knew it. They brought in a DP that I already knew. And so we, we got right through it. And the actors were great with me. You know, they let me, they, Piper had already like, given me like a two-week boot camp on how to communicate with her and all of that. And so that I understood, you know, using action verbs and things that she could use to process and and it's, let me tell you, it's amazing when you can, when it's, they're not, when it's not turning out the way that you think it should be or it's not turning out well, and that you can actually go in and help them with the process and, and manipulate them and have them have it turn out the way you want it or the way it's, bet, that it's better, it's like, it's great. So it all worked out. The show went, the episode went really well. They, uh, it aired. And the numbers were big, were good. So the next season they said, we'd like to, you to do it again, but we'd like, you know, can you do, we, we want you to do it twice. I said, okay, I can do it twice. And at that point, during the off-season, I had um, talked to the people at NBC, and they had said, yeah, you know, it's great. Um, so then we went in, and I did two episodes, and it was really, it was fun. Um... You know, it was pretty, it, having done this for this long, it was very, very easy to, for the technical end of it. It was just the, the, the directing and understanding how to break down a script and doing all that. But again, I had a lot of help on the show. The other thing that made it, um, I'll never forget the first time they called me, the first day they called me, my business manager called me and said, um, your residual check just showed up. And... She sent me a copy of it, and I went marching into the producer's office and said, why didn't you show me these before this? Because this is silly. Because you get almost as much as your directing fee the first time out. It's seriously silly money. For doing something that you, just, you would really do for free.
you know. Well, plus the residual is something you're not doing at all. No, not <laughs> at all. And, and, and all of a sudden this check shows up, and it and and you know it reduces as it goes through. Yeah. So then um, the next two episodes were fun, and and it got a little you know I had to deal a little more with acting, and we, they then there were actors that weren't uh, from that were regular actors that were brought in and and I had to go through the whole process and it got a little more difficult in that respect. So then during that hiatus, NBC said, okay, NBC and uh, the people at Hypnotic said, okay, this is what we want you to do. So I took a class on story by McGee, Robert McGee. I uh, took uh, acting classes um, and uh, and then they said, uh, at the next season they said, you're only directing. You're not going to be a DP. And I went, all right, I'll only direct. So then I directed three, and then uh, and then there were two other shows. Then I went and directed Quantico. Yeah. And then I directed uh, Allegiance. And then uh, and those were all, you know, those were people I did not know, and I had to go straight from ground zero. And it was, you know, interesting. But... It, Luckily for me, I had already, you know, learned how to break down, and the acting class was just my favorite. I could not, like, if I had to do it again, I might want to be an actor, but I doubt it. Um, but well, it that's was, a good idea, though, for a director to take an acting class. Well, you have to. You end up with a common language, and you, you understand truly what they're what they need, and uh, they were. Uh, it was very funny because when we were we would do uh, scene studies and stuff, you know, breaking down and all that stuff. And so they, we were doing an improv thing, and they said, "Okay, so Ben Affleck and Ben Affleck and you have, you know, you've been with Ben and and uh, and da da." And they set up this thing, and then they said, "And go." And so I went off and did this and told, essentially acted out the story that I had lived with Ben Affleck and. Uh, and the director, the the woman running the program, went, you know, teaching class went, all right, cut. Uh, that's it. Scenes over. With. And he, she goes, all right. You have to give me a list of people that you actually know, so you can't. They can't be that easy for you again. <laughs> so we don't go. So we don't. So don't we use those people? Yeah. Again. So she goes because that was too easy. You you just you fell into it so well. I said, well, Ben and I, you know, I did a movie with Ben, and and I know who Ben is, and so when you set up that premise. It's how Ben and I treated each other, so it was pretty easy. Very so, cool. So it was great. And then I did a scene from a, a play called American Buffalo, and um, you get uh, my character is waiting for somebody else to arrive and is angry when that person arrives. And I started the scene, and I just started getting angrier and angrier until literally every other word out of my mouth was fuck. You fuck! How could you treat me like this? And the the she said, you know, seeing you know, I went, wow! I have no idea where that came from. Wow! I have no and uh, the the acting class was in down in um, uh, near MG near Sony, and Piper had a, an apartment in Venice, so I drove straight to Piper's uh, apartment. I went, this is what happened. And she goes, it's okay. Said, All right, <laughs> just relax. She goes. When you're starting to act and you're getting in and you're beginning to deal with those emotions, you're going to go to the big emotions. 
So if you're angry, you're going to get really angry because that's what your body's used to and how you and you feel. So you're fine. Just have a drink and settle down. Okay. And but it was great. And you could and and some of those sequences, like I've always, I always had worried about actors. You know, eye lines and moving around and cameras and things like that of how they, how they can continually act. But I know that in a couple of the scenes that I did, once you connect with the other character and you're going at it, you could have burnt that. The playhouse could have just burnt to the ground, and I would still continue. You still are doing what you do. And so you realize that with some training and, and understanding that that's how, they get, that's how they deal with it. Wow. That it's really connecting with the other character. I was always amazed with actors with the the amount of the energy level that they could maintain. Right. Well, it becomes it really it, it you it, it's very easy when you're in that situation when you're when you're doing it that to maintain that level you're you're on a high when it's working you're high you know and it's coming down off of it it's when it's done when the day is over that was the other thing that I found in directing was I'd always laughed about how directors, you know, especially here in Los Angeles or when you're working on stage somewhere where all the rest of us drive ourselves, but the directors get drivers. And I went, ah, I don't need a driver. Well, the, after the first day of directing, when I got into the back of the car, you go, oh, my God, I need a driver. I couldn't <laughs> drive if I needed to be. Because everybody needs a part of you, needs a something. And that was the other thing that I was told right off the bat was everyone needs an answer. And it's the same you learn as a DP. You, um, and I learned early as a camera assistant. Like I had a camera operator who was afraid to set the shot and he wouldn't actually lay the dolly track or, or you know put the marks where the camera was going to be until he was like forced to. Like it was the actors, the lighting was done, and now you do it. And I always went, no, that's not, and when I operated, that was one of the things I always worked my way to. No, if you want to, as an operator, especially in television, you need to control, there's a, a, there's a bit of a battle. And if you can set your shot first and get your shot laid out, you control, you control the set. And you control where the lighting goes. Because if I know what my shot's going to be, and they start to put that light in, you go, uh-uh, uh-uh, my shot goes to there. But if they're lighting and you don't have the shot set up, they can start to force your frame in. So it becomes a bit of a battle. So I've always went, make that decision quick, set it up. Now, I can change my mind. If it's not going to work, I can always say, uh-uh, it doesn't work. So I've always done that as a camera operator and as, as a DP, where I'll, I'm very quick to make a decision. We move on and get going. Directing is the same way. Like when they come to you and they want to know about the car. What car do you want? Well, you need to tell them. Okay, I want a Mustang and I want it to be blue. Now, later, you're a director. You can change your mind. But he's not going to do anything until you tell him to make a, get a blue Mustang. And so you need all of that. You're literally moving the ship. And you need the ship to move. You can change its course as it goes. But that's the main thing in directing is always answering everyone's questions because they don't, they're really not going to do anything until you answer it. So I think that was probably the most important thing I've ever been told. Well, and it's really everybody, too. 
Yeah. Every department. Everybody. Yeah. Oh no, I just the operator who 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 kept, just I hated him because he would just it made everything so horrible because now instead of having time to get your focus marks and things like that and the dolly grip working out how we were going to move and all of that it was now like and you there was no easy way about it it it, it put so much extra pressure on everybody everybody yeah. they're waiting for you right so then now now you know as soon as i learned it and then also being able to being able to control it being able to control that environment you know, because they will. The, the, the gaffer and the electricians will definitely start squeezing you in. And you've got to, and it takes a big, it takes a lot of effort to get them to move those lights. They don't like to move them once they've set them. So if you can control it, you can, you, you're way farther into it. Do you think it was easier because you had been a DP to move up as a director? There were parts of it that made it, um, I think... Uh, for production, it was better for them that I was a DP when I moved when they moved me up to director, only because um, that part of the that part of the sequence was much easier, where I could I could set up shots and and do things, and that wasn't a worry for anybody. That you knew that all my stuff was always going to cut together well, you know that it wasn't like oh my god we were going to miss that, and that's the other thing. Oh, that's the other thing they made me do is they made me go to editing. Like, editing was in Los Angeles. And I was supposed to, after the first job, I was supposed to go st straight out and start shooting again. And they said, no, 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 no. Send them to, send them to L.A. Let them sit through the edit. And you, when you sit through the edit, you know, the editor goes, hey, I miss, uh, you know. I said, we should cut into a close-up right then. And, and he goes, uh, you didn't shoot one for that. Yeah, yeah, I did. No, you didn't. Shit, because now, now, you, but with modern cameras, you can just say, "We'll take that medium shot and make it yeah. a close-up," yeah. and, and it's fine. And you can reframe a little bit here and there. But that was also a big learning curve. Was now understanding that sometimes maybe what I was editing in my head wasn't going to work in the edit room, so I, there should be a little extra. And you had also always made your days too, which well, is that's what was the big thing. Is they yeah. always. But production loves that. The, the production itself loves that. But the counter to that is, in editing, no one cares if you made your day or not. And, in, and when it airs, no one cares if you made your day or not. It, it only cares to the line producer and to the, um, and to the money people, the studio. But to anyone else, it really doesn't care. It just makes it, it, makes it easier for them to justify. To, say, to justify you. Yeah. But that's, that was it. Like knowing, knowing, uh, um, you know, if you have to go a little long, then you just have to go a little long, and say, I'm not going to make my day, but, you know, just make sure you know how long you've got to go. Right. Um, let me ask you one final question because you've been so gracious to us with this time and in your lovely garden here. So quit being nice now. Okay. You've been so gracious for me. Really? Well, it just now, makes me sound now you're gonna now you're gonna now you're gonna pull that. Out. I might put this in the beginning. You never oh, yeah. know. I'm the editor. I'm the editor. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Okay. I'm sorry. I didn't mean to interrupt. No. I didn't mean to upset your graciousness. <laughs> uh, what is the best advice you could give anyone getting to this business besides your first uh, advice, which is you better love this. 
Yeah, it's, I mean, I, I still think that is the most. That's the one thing that has to that has to completely. This has to be your obsessive life. It is. Um, but if that's not what I can tell someone, then it would be. Find know what your know what your passion is for it. Know what you want to do. What your end game is. Because that's the one thing that we do do, is we pigeonhole. It's really tough to create to go somewhere else. So figure out what what your what your end game is, and then enter into the business as what's going to step me to my end game. Because that's that's the only way. That's that's how it is. Because you, you're not going to be able to switch horses in midstream. You know, if you want to be a grip, or you want to be an electrician, you want to be it. It's going to be tough to bounce between the. They they'll know you as whatever you start at, and that's what we do. We and it's because it's it's more comfortable for me to know that you're that um, as as a DP or as a director than to all of a sudden go, oh wait a minute, you're doing that, but you didn't come up through the ranks doing that, so do you know all the stuff? Because it is watching other people, you know how to set a C-stand or how to make a light work or how to put focus on a camera. Those are all the steps that, that bring you to that point. And it's one of the great things that I think, especially in, in the camera, and you talk to the people that are, um, that were great cameramen, that you worked with wonderful cameramen. You know, Connie Hall didn't start off as a DP. You know, Connie was a camera, you know, was a, was a camera operator and they all, they all hung out. Jordan Cronenworth was a, you know, Jordan was a camera assistant first. They all worked their way through it and watching the process and then learned the process through that. Now there's kids that come out of film school and, you know, can do it, but they're not going to, when they get in those situations, they're not going to know how to, something that you've seen someone else go through. Like I noticed that that was one of the things that I noticed when I moved up to DP was that I found myself saying the same things that Caleb said or was saying the same things that Chappie said. It was like, oh my God, you know, when you when all of a sudden you get to be an adult and you go, oh my God, I sound like my father or I sound like my mother. All of a sudden I go, oh my God, I sound like Chappie or oh my God, I sound like Caleb or, you know, so it was, those were the things or Jack Green, you know, those are the things that you go, ah, Yeah. And so you pick up those things and you understand that that's how you want to do it. So I would say figure your end game out and then find the process to get to it. But again, you've got to love this. There's no other way you're going to survive it. Because if not, it's just going to eat you up. It's such a great life. We hope you like this Film 5.0 podcast. Please follow us on social media at TheFilm5.0. And please subscribe to our page so you won't miss another episode. Our website is thefilm50.com. Thanks for listening. Hollywood.